Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent base. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know your lines, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome back to another episode of Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is the illustrious Ryan Siebold, and with me today, a man who has had a long-standing career as Tom Cruise's stunt double, Mr. Jason Peters! What's up, Ryan? How is it going? <laughs> it's going well, buddy. You're bringing some Captain Caveman energy to uh, the What's Up Ryan intro. I appreciate it. Well, yeah, you. no, I mean, I'm bringing that Tom Cruise energy, right? Like, I mean, you guys you guys see how he is when he's, you know, sitting down on a couch ostensibly. Next thing you know, running around, jumping around all crazy. <laughs> so, you know, I, I got to be ready to go with that Tom Cruise energy, right? Uh, also, uh, yeah. do not... Cost me opportunities, Ryan. That's a, that's 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 more Tom Cruise energy for you. Appreciate you. Appreciate you bringing I, the heat. I, I flip on a dime, bro. On a dime. Now Tom Cruise's stunt double. I was just, you know, kind of curious. I, I feel like you're just kind of sitting around eating donuts and uh, smoking cigarettes all day. I couldn't imagine you'd have a whole lot to do. But you know. Pretty good job to have, kind of like a third string quarterback. Yeah, yeah. No, so basically what it amounts to is there's a lot of – so I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a secret here, okay? A little – Insider trading, industry industry trading, let's say. Insider trading is, is okay, illegal. Okay, okay. We would never now, Hey, that's that. what our fans tune in for here. <laughs> yeah, so um, Tom is very involved in a lot of, shall we say, less than legal foreign – Film markets, okay. So you guys are probably familiar with, you know, some of. We just got our we just got our first lawsuit, Jason. Uh, carry on and be notified right here in the email. Shit. All right, hold on. Let me Someone let me. Uh, our if you could do account. me a favor, if you could do me a favor, if you could go back and if you could edit or bleep out the times where I say Tom Cruise, including that one right just there, um, I am going to uh, hereby uh, refer to him as Entity Number One. Okay. For Tom Cruise's lawyers, that's Jason Peters, P-E-T-E-R-S. So entity entity number one has a strong showing and a strong presence within a couple of these sort of, like I said, black market film industries, uh, not the least of which is Ghana. So you may not have realized this, but like uh, you've probably seen a lot of the very, shall we say, creative movie movie posters that come out of Ghana. Uh, for stuff, you know, like sure. uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, where it shows him, you know, holding a rake and stabbing uh, Pierce Brosnan's character in the chest and like, you know, feasting on the, like just crazy, bizarre out there shit. So, yeah. So what Tom does to actually supplement his income, you'd think 20 million a film plus back end would keep you afloat. But uh, there's a lot of money going to the Church of Scientology, church in uh, quotations, obviously. And so, yeah. So what he does is uh, he makes a lot of secondhand films in in Ghana, and I'm actually Tom in all of those films, right? So yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, no, that makes total yeah, yeah, sense. Because yeah. when I see when I see your face, Jason, I think Tom Cruise hands down every time. It's 
Uncanny. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so like one of the uh, one of our one of our big films right now that actually I just wrapped up for him over there is um, Doctor Weird Two, uh, Multiverse of Upsetness. Okay. That was a yeah. So that's a that's a that's a that's a really strong showing right now. Actually, apparently, like eighty five percent of all the Ghana movie tickets have been for for that one uh, recently. So um, that's trending really strongly. <laughs> um, Excelsior. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, there was a, a movie called The uh, Northwestman. Um, uh, or no 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 the no no Northwest no the yeah. Northeastman, and it was about an intellectual oh, from it. Boston. Uh, who was seeking revenge on like I don't know one of his history professors Wait for or something? It? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. it was it was surprisingly Great. violent for uh, a film that takes place largely in a university. I will tell you, Jason, I loved your performances in both Ghana with the Wind <laughs> and I'm Ghana Get You Sucker. Both of those films. Fantastic uh, comedic performances in both those movies. That was fantastic. You know, you, you, you know what's funny is I actually did catch a little bit of heat for some decisions uh, with both of those films because I didn't want to be derivative, right? Like, I didn't just want to give you Clark Gable on the first one, my dear, right? And then, uh, uh, you know, well, <laughs> I don't know Clark, if there's any Clark real, Gable. like, uh, sensitive way to do I'm going to get you, sucker. So I'm just going to kind of gloss over that one right now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, basically what I, so, you know, in a very, I'd been watching a lot of Nick Cage, listening to a lot of Nick Cage podcasts, trying to sort of diversify my acting style. So I decided that I would do both of them in the fashion of Al Pacino. Um, oh yeah. So fantastic you know, like, choices. This is a choice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in the, in the big gone with Why the wind you, scene, could, <laughs> Hey, could you give us a little bit of that? I, yeah, yeah absolutely. So, you know, in the big gone with the wind scene, you know, you know, frankly, frankly, Scarlett, I don't give it a damn, you know, you put Al Pacino on it, totally different Iconic. flavor. Right. So instead, so instead it sounds a little bit of something like, frankly, my darling, I don't give a damn. <laughs> Right, so you know, there's that one, and then you know, uh, for <laughs> I'm gonna get you, sucker. It's kind of the same thing. I don't, I don't know any memorable lines of dialogue, but we'll go with like something like a, "Hey, you, I'm, I'm gonna get you, sucker." Something like that, you know, right? <laughs> the, so. Yeah, I mean the the titular <laughs> uh, quote. Yeah, <laughs> I don't really know what that movie is known for. <laughs> it's kind of hard to make jokes around a film that i haven't seen <laughs> yeah yeah but, and, um, uh, you know also not be a racist yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there's yeah, a lot of that thing. yeah for sure <laughs> but yeah you know and of course uh you know as as uh tom cruise and it's funny because he's actually um known as com trues over in ghana which is where the dj got his name a lot of people don't realize that the dj com trues is actually a reference to my films uh, he, 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 was, oh, he was originally wow. uh, born and raised in Ghana and then um, obviously moved and, uh, you know, since has gone on to have a very successful career in electronic music. But, yeah, I had a lot to do with um, – I actually funded him early on, uh, you know, because Ghana, not exactly uh, a wealthy place. And, I mean, where is he going to get turntables and a computer, right? So I kind of helped him out with that. Uh, actually reached out to Tom. Tom came through with that for me. Tom's a really nice guy. You know, people don't really understand that, like... Absolutely. He's a super, right. super nice guy. My lawyers make sure that uh, I, I say that every single time I have these conversations. Um, After this uh, intro, you're definitely going to be saying a lot of things uh, that your lawyers <laughs> make you say. Yeah. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, thankfully, you know, like I said, uh, have, looking like Tom Cruise, as I do, I've been able to carve a nice niche. 
Yes, absolutely. You, uh, you're just backing him up all the way through. I, I would say, you know, behind every good Tom Cruise is a uh, very talented Tom Cruise, and that's you, my friend. So good on you. Thanks, for man. Getting us these bangers I'm just, throughout the years. I'm just so excited to be Tom Cruise. <laughs> Jumping on couches. My, and yeah, future me is going to love editing those levels. That's going to be great. <laughs> You're welcome. All right, Ryan. Well, that sound actually means the start of a new feature that we have here on Esoterica Cinema, and it's called Listener Mailbox. That's Listener right. Listener Mailbox. I, <laughs> <laughs> I felt it needed that. Exactly. Oh, no, uh, absolutely. If we don't have that already started by the time this airs, we're absolutely going to do something like that <laughs> moving forward. 100%. 100%. But yeah, so uh, we decided, you know, we announced this on the first episode using the wrong number, if you recall, in my near phishing scam I almost fell for. Uh, <laughs> and we started a new mailbox. So the the one that we got now is current, good old domestic uh, number, US of A, uh, local number actually right here to Los Angeles, an 818 number. So, and we are encouraging you all to call in. And let us know what you thought about certain episodes, certain movies, anything under the sun, really. It could be muffin-related. You know we love to hear about muffins. It could be crepe-related this time. It could be even, I don't know, something silly like a Danish, right? I don't know. I, I love getting, a good Danish. Get wild. Get wild. Calm down, I know, Jason. I know, Calm I know, down. I know. I know. Sorry, man. I'm just really excited about this new voicemail, and I hope everybody else is too. So uh, we've got a number for you here. It's... Um, and, and, and again, I'm encouraging everyone to call in with any, uh, opinions under the sun, 818-483-6285. Going to go ahead and hit you up one more time. 818-483-6285. Call the Esoterica Cinema Hotline. Leave us anything that you would like for us to play on the air. And uh, Ryan, what we're going to do here is we're going to go ahead and listen to our very first two submissions ever. First up, this caller. Put me on the air, bitches. Blueberry muffin. <laughs> well, Ryan, I mean, uh, she, did, <laughs> she did get on the air and uh, we did put her on the air as requested. And uh, she referenced muffins. You know, obviously it's somebody who listens to That's the show. Otherwise, you know. Or else, really, muffins just are that popular, and we didn't really realize the entire time that we've been hitting on uh, something big here. It's on brand, and uh, yeah, <laughs> she <laughs> she knew how to how to tug at our heartstrings. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, listener. Let's go to our next person. Hey, this question's for uh, Jason Peters. I, I want to know, man, why why the hell did you cut the Yeti beach scene out of Whiteout? You know, that book was missing a lot of good sexual tension. I think putting a Yeti on the beach is what we all wanted to see. And I, I for one, I'm just, I'm fired up about it. And I, I'd love to hear your defense, man. Just unacceptable. Uh, oh, geez. Okay. So everybody, <laughs> <laughs> so this Jason, is, uh, Jason, you have some splaining to do my friend. Yeah, this is a dude named Ashton McCulley. If you've been listening to us for a while, you may remember him. As the author on uh, that wrote the books we used to do the commercials on back at the end of season one and I believe most, if not all, of season two. 
white we had out. the uh, commercials for <laughs> aberrant literature. Yeah, exactly. White aberrant out with the Australian dude. <laughs> and uh, that's actually my uh, my side hustle, guys. My uh, little publishing venture, aberrant literature. There, we do some some cool uh, science fiction, horror, sci fi, fantasy stuff. We got a new anthology coming out that's a cosmic horror book that'll be out within the next couple months. And then the first person I ever published was this dude Ashton. His book Whiteout is awesome. It's a super fun adventure. It is awesome. Novel. Yeah. In, in and, all uh, fairness, jokes aside, I love that book very much. It has uh, every, I mean, all the adventure uh, boxes are ticked uh, from, you know, if you're a fan of Indiana Jones or, or the Uncharted video game series or anything of that ilk, uh, it's fantastic stuff. And it's very well written. Um, and, you know, not to, I know you won't toot your own horn, Jason, but just for the listeners, uh, Jason is a bit of an author himself and has written uh, some whole ass novels start to finish. So, yeah, good stuff here. <laughs> we love his contributions to the literary world. A lot of people don't know that Jason actually is a an established writer, uh, publisher, and editor, and uh, apparently sometimes a little too astute in the editing department, getting rid of some of the <laughs> the, the 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 hot, sexy Yeti scenes that the public wants. <laughs> Steamy yes, beach Yetis. I always tell Ashton he he has no idea how good he has it with me. It's the only it's literally the only thing I've ever cut from anything he's ever submitted, and we've done three or four things together. And uh, yeah, so it's literally the only thing he has to complain about. So he complains about it all the time. But yeah, uh, Ashton <laughs> McCauley's a great author. Go ahead and check it out. Wide out. I published the book. If you're interested in checking out my work, I did a little uh, metaphysical fantasy called Preconscious. Go and check it out. It's a little sci-fi as well. Hit me up later. Um, but yeah, that's the context for that one. Available where books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that's what we got here to start us off with our, uh, new Esoterica Cinema Hotline listener mailbox. So, uh, thanks for calling we'll see in. If we get any... Appreciate you, buddy. <laughs> and, uh, we'll see if we get any more, you know, in-depth analysis in the future or if it's going to be just a, a lot of inanity or maybe somewhere in between. We'll see. But, uh, either way, we sure do appreciate you people calling in. And, uh, once again, as a reminder, you can call in to the Esoterica Cinema Hotline. We would love to hear whatever you have to say about anything under the sun, including cinematic items as well as muffin-related items. You can call 818-483-6285, and we will see you next week for another edition of Listener Mailbox. All right, Jason. Well, uh, I don't mean to you know bring you down from your star power in Ghana to humble <sighs> you into our little podcast, but right. uh, we, do have a, we do have a movie to talk about today. Absolutely. Let me go ahead and slip back into my modest podcast host voice. Bling! Hopefully you can do some sort of sparkle sound effect, and that just happened right now. I will not. I am leaving <laughs> that in the show. Bling! Just the way you provided it. Anybody listening who wants to, like, record this and isolate that and use it for your production, go ahead. Here you go one more time. Bling! You just don't mess with... Don't mess with... Produ- yeah, you just don't mess with perfection, buddy. That's just... Today we are watching... Just a wonderful, wonderful film by the name of Amadeus. I'm going to go ahead and read you a description from Google that's uh, actually quite good. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart is a remarkably talented young Viennese composer who unwittingly finds a fierce rival in the disciplined and determined Antonio Salieri. 
resenting Mozart for both his hedonistic lifestyle and his undeniable talent, the highly religious Salieri is gradually consumed by jealousy and becomes obsessed with Mozart's downfall, leading to a devious scheme that has dire consequences for both men. Ryan, what did you think about this movie? Jason? As someone who doesn't usually get to be on this side of the conversation, I will let you know very enthusiastically after this trailer. Yes, I know that. Oh, that's charming. I'm sorry, I didn't know you wrote that. I didn't. That was Mozart. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. The man you accuse yourself of killing. He was my idol. How good is he? The greatest composer known to me. Is it true? <laughs> I think you really are going mad. Our illustrious court composer, Maestro Salier. If you have something to confess, do it now. Give yourself some peace. Ah, Mozart. He's remarkable, Majesty. I want to meet this young man. I'm trying to commission an opera from him. He's set in fat. Play, I am working on something that is going to explode like a bombshell all over Europe. They say you have debts. I have to have time for composition. But your grace, I Your son is an unprincipled, spoiled, conceited brat. Shut up! Why would God choose an obscene child to be his instrument? <laughs> Rather than let a mediocrity share in the smallest part of his glory. I'm a vulgar man. But I assure you, my music is not. Believe in it. Fire which never dies, burning me forever. Oh, yes. All right, now, Ryan, before we talk about this film proper, let's just real quick touch on the writer and director. So the writer is a man by the name of Peter Schaefer, and he was originally a playwright. And the play, I want to say, came out in about 78. The film, this film, I believe, was released in 84. So, you know, pretty quickly adapted. So he actually wrote the screenplay for this film, along with Milos, but he gets full credit. So he adapted his own theatrical production for this film, which I thought was pretty interesting. And they actually had a very interesting relationship when they were crafting this film together. So uh, the story goes that like Milos was actually dragged to the theater to see this film called, or see this stage production called Amadeus. And the funny thing is apparently he was not looking forward to this because in his native country, the, the Czech Republic, apparently they do a lot of biopics on musical composers. And specifically the reason that they do this is because the films themselves are never political. 
So there'll often be these like sort of totalitarian or communist regimes and they don't like having any film that like, you know, makes some sort of political statement, talks negative about the state, etc. So the state would largely fund these biopics of famous musicians and these theatrical productions of famous musicians. So Milos thought he was just going to another by the numbers one of these, ended up being really struck by the production and by the end of watching the stage production, like reached out to his agent, was like, hey, you know, get me the writer for this. I want to make it into a movie. So pretty interesting way that that came together. The two of them ended up actually working on the screenplay together for like five months, spending five days a week and then flying back and forth like on the weekends to get what they described as a much needed respite because they fought very hard on the direction of this film. They have very different styles and, you know, Schaefer likes to go out of his way to kind of subvert expectations and Foreman does to a degree, but within reason. And so it was a really sort of interesting give and take that the two of them had in the creation of the film that is based on the theatrical production. But apparently the theatrical production had a lot less music and a lot less Mozart. And it was really just mostly a drama about Salieri. So they agreed to bring those elements to the film. So a little bit of background there for you. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, before we dive into this proper, uh, I should throw out that I'm a moron and I had to completely educate myself on the surface about what was going on at this time. Uh, you know, the composers and dates and things kind of eluded me. So I know obviously Mozart and Beethoven and all these things, but as far as when these people existed in the time frame that they, um, you know, you talk about different eras of music, classical music, and, and even, uh, the regions, like I had no idea that Mozart was from Austria. And so was Beethoven and Hayden. Uh, now, Beethoven was actually from Bonn, Germany. Uh, but all these people existed kind of in the same time. In fact, uh, it's rumored that Beethoven and Mozart uh, and Hayden all knew each other. Whether um, Hayden was kind of a mentor to Mozart, even though he wasn't portrayed in the film. Uh, and it's rumored that Beethoven and Mozart had met, although Mozart was about 20 years his senior and died young. So there was very a uh, lot less overlap in that regard. But um yeah, as far as who Salieri is and and uh, Emperor Joseph II, played by Jeffrey Jones, uh, you know, this was a learning experience for me. And nice. I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was an odd choice that Tom Holch was uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, uh, as I only knew him from Animal House. So I was <laughs> yeah. like, that's... That's an odd pickup. And then I did a little research on that and found out he actually was a huge Broadway guy. He's won Tony Awards uh, for uh, several things, and, and not the least of which uh, did American Idiot, uh, the adaptation of Green Day's album for Broadway. And he got a start for Peter Schaefer doing a play called Equus on Broadway in 1972, I believe. So uh, I would imagine that has a lot to do with why he got chosen to do this part because of his inroad with Peter Schaefer in the past. So yeah. uh, for you to say Peter Schaefer was very deeply involved in this, I believe he was. It Absolutely. also stars a great F. Murray Abraham as Antonio Salieri, who is fantastic in this role. 100%. Yeah, and we'll go ahead and get into that here very, very soon. When this film kicks off, though, we have two men, one played by the great Vincent Schiavelli. Always nice to see him around. Vincent Schiavelli! <laughs> I was so excited to see him. It, uh, nice little cameo for Milos, I assume. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They actually reached out to him specifically and asked him to do that. And, you know, they're the keepers of someplace. We don't really know exactly what yet. And they're approaching a closed door and they're trying to coax someone out 
again, we don't know who it is yet, with, you know, it looks like some sort of dessert, cookies and whipped cream, etc. And the man doesn't that come out. That shit looked good, right? It looked real good. Oh, yeah. I wanted some. <laughs> the man doesn't come out, though. Instead, we hear a scream, which prompts the two men to barge down the door. They open it up, and we see our titular character, Salieri, with a bunch of blood all over his neck and his hands having just slit his throat, which triggers, obviously, a number of people to come and try to rescue him and take him to a nearby hospital. Now, the one thing that I do think is very interesting, by the way, uh, that was one thing that they fought about was the amount of blood on that scene. Milos didn't want very much blood. And Peter was like, you've got to be realistic, man, and have a bunch of blood. So Peter won out, but like Milos still thinks that that scene is too bloody. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And I thought, uh, and one thing that I really appreciate about that scene is how it's the first instance we see of, the way that the music is going to be such a central part of this movie. So when they're actually running Salieri over to the hospital, we also are contrasting that with a number of people dancing, right? And it's all set to one of Mozart's uh, pieces of music. And even the editing is actually on beat for that entire first scene. And so this was a very intentional decision by them to, to really bring to your and the audience's attention the fact that the music is sort of a character in and of itself, right? It's going to be front. Sure. It's going to be center. It's going to – a lot of the, the narrative, it's going to be weaved into the narrative. Decisions are going to be made based around that. So they really wanted to just sort of show you up front that like, yes, you know, the music here is going to be just as important as the location, the acting and everything else. And then we get we quickly get what I think is a really strong setup where we see old man Salieri in what is a mental hospital and he's visited by a priest. And so this is sort of the device that's, you know, set up for the entire film where he's recant he's recounting this story of his youth and it's ultimately his story, right? Salieri is the protagonist of this film, and it's sort of about how his and Mozart's lives move in tandem. And for Salieri specifically, Mozart ends up being this sort of great antagonist for what he's trying to do. And when we start, we've got, you know, a quick flashback where Salieri actually tells of being in his youth and how his dad didn't approve of music. But Salieri wanted to be a very famous composer, and he actually prayed to God to make him a famous composer. And shortly thereafter, his dad choked to death at the dinner table. Salieri interprets this as God stepping in and intervening on his behalf, and so he commits the rest of his life to being a very religious person, right? Because he thinks that this is what God wants. This is reverence and appreciation for the fact that he, he being God, took Salieri under his wing and made him a great composer, right? And he takes that very seriously. We contrast that with this cat, Mozart. So when we're introduced to Mozart, the two of them are at this party. It's at this very grand, opulent sort of, you know, castle. Everything you picture in your head, right? Just in terms of those, like, grandiose, opulent 1800s, you know, or prior uh, architecture that's that's still around to this day. Um, and we see Salieri progressing through the hall. He's wondering if he's going to be able to recognize who Mozart is just based on his reputation, finds himself in a room with a bunch of desserts. And very quickly, we see a couple, they barge into the room. They're being very flirty. 
And this uh, young man is chasing around this young woman, almost in like a very cartoon fashion, right? Like the Pirates of the Caribbean, right? At Disneyland, chasing her around the table. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and like, you know, it was very Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dragging her under the table with her breasts all popping out yes. and stuff like that. Like, um, and, you know, being very crude. One thing I thought was interesting, too, is uh, we see them very quickly sort of play a game of like, backwards pig latin where mozart is speaking backwards and she's trying to interpret what he's saying apparently that was uh, based in truth so there was uh, one of the little quirks about mozart is that he really appreciated playing with words and music backwards so it was not uncommon for him huh. to just go around and play a song backwards or deliver lines and words backwards and have people guess them like they did here and that actually speaks to a larger approach that Peter Schaefer took, which is that everything that he does in this script has a kernel of truth in reality. So basically a lot of the things that Mozart does were actually things that happened to other people that were close to Mozart and he borrowed them for dramatic purposes and, you know, ascribed them to Mozart and sort of made them work in the narrative. Um, but, like, nothing that really happens in this film is a complete fabrication of of Peter Schaefer's. They did a, a ton of research on this movie and would use all of these tidbits from all of these different stories at the time and weave them into their narrative. So I wanted to ask you, Ryan, like, one of the... Uh, you know, obviously great aspects of this film is, you know, the set design, the production, the lavish nature of all this, the costumes. What was your response to all of that? Because this is the first time that you've seen this movie, right? It is. Yes. Uh, this was my ad because uh, onto the list because I have never seen this movie. I've always wanted to. Um, I remember clips of this film, of all things, in my earliest childhood memories uh, from Disney World at the Disney Hollywood Studios, formerly MGM Studios, on the great movie ride. And at the very end, there is a montage sequence that your little car that you're in pulls up and you watch this whole thing about cinematic history. And uh, there's this breakdown uh, where it goes into this classical music riff and it keeps cutting back and forth to... Uh, Amadeus, the film, and him composing in his pink wig and the whole bit mm. uh, going bananas. So, um, yeah, I, I've this movie has kind of been a part of my history, a film history in the background for <laughs> quite a while. I've known about it, and I've just never watched it. It's a long one. I mean, let's start there. Um, I've never really known... Uh, I mean, there's just not really like a fun draw to this film initially when I was younger and like going through my must watch days. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, it's but, a slow uh, period piece. It's this, you know, it feels like a, right, when you're 12, right. it feels like a film your mom and dad would watch. And it probably is to be fair. Um, yeah. But yeah. So I totally get that. But uh, I will say, I love this movie. This movie slaps the, a couple things about it to to answer your question. Number one, 18th century fashion fucks. I fucks yeah. with some 18th century fashion, bro. Um, it looks ornate. like it's a fucking to do. Yeah. You have to wonder how long it took to get ready every morning. Oh man, but, uh, must have been rough. Yeah. <laughs> All the way down to like the colonial hats and stuff like that. Um, Mozart's son wears towards the end when he's you know in bed at the very very end and and passing, uh, you know the old style. Colonial hats that we, you know we see a lot of our founding fathers wearing. You got the uh, you know, the ruffled sleeves. You've got uh, you know 
Yeah, everything garters multiple and multiple layers, leases, right? tons of leases. You've got like yeah. you've got you know your blouse and then the overcoat and then like your pocket, like and then, I mean even for the especially for the guys too, they're doing makeup, they're doing hair, like it Wigs. was a whole production yeah. for everyone. A whole production, yeah. You needed like a staff of people, and they showcase that you know how much goes into this and how you had all this support system of people working around you if you were of noble descent of some kind, you know, uh, to keep up with the Joneses made me wonder, like, you know, there, there was a couple things that I, you know, as far as the financial standings and, and what was going on at this time, um, because of all the service staff everyone kind of had. And if you didn't have that, yeah, uh, you were kind of seen as less than, um, I also thought it was very interesting that, uh, and we'll get into this, but, um, uh, that Mozart and, and people like him weren't making necessarily a lot of money off of their work. They would have to get these side hustles of like, you know, taking on um, students and yeah. teaching them and stuff like that. And that's how they would make their money. Mozart was cranking out bangers. <laughs> people were like, dude, this guy fucking slaps. Have you heard the new Mozart joint? And everyone's like, yeah, that guy fucking crushes. Everywhere he went, they're like, oh, that's Mozart. That's Mozart. And yet he was like, you know, According to this film, uh, not very well off for yeah. most of his life, and um, he was also you know, super stubborn. He, I mean, to which obviously the film he wasn't know. getting that Spotify money yet. You know that hadn't really. <laughs> oh yeah, because all everyone's so living so fat off of the Spotify royalties, right? All you hear about is how just easy street for anybody with their shit Absolutely. up on Spotify. <laughs> hey, look, dude, our generous. Our, some people are listening to Esoterica Cinema on Spotify right now. And I will tell you, uh, thank you for my gold chalice I'm drinking my water out of yeah. uh, table side here. It's fantastic. Gold chalices are much nicer than I thought they'd be. Uh, it's my pimp cup. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's, to, it's still like that to this day, right? I mean, it, that's, I guess, the, the interesting oh, yeah. thing is 100, you know, 100, 200 years, however many years later, you, it's the same thing. You know, musicians can't make a living and, and just doing the music and... There's a very select few, but you would think to your point, right, that he would have been like that select few that made it, right? He would have been like the Billie you Eilish think? of his time or something, right? Like he's one of the three that get paid buku bucks at the time. You'd think. Billie Eilish uh, famously broke. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. She struggled her very money hard. giving singing lessons <laughs> over the weekend. <laughs> in Liv Glendale. Living in near um, poverty, that one. Yeah, yeah, just, you know, hanging out in the burbs and, and just getting by, you know? Um, as the song says, making your way in the world today takes everything you got. I will say uh, to your question, <laughs> the conversation full circle after our stupid rant, um, you know, they, they used American or English accents for this instead yes. of trying to, like, zhuzh it up with any kind of European flair. Sure. They just kind of stuck with their native... Uh, situation, and I guess that was a directing uh, decision by Milo, so that they could focus more on their performances and less on the authenticity yeah. of the time period. Do you think that tossing it back to you? Do you think that worked for you, or or how did that play out as far as like kind of westernizing this? Yeah, uh, no, I, I honestly I thought it worked very well, uh, and perhaps that's because I'm a Western audience, right? And so you could argue that it speaks to me to that degree. But I mean. <laughs> Let's be honest, Ryan. What did we? When did we do the Beast? Like four films ago, right? Yep. <laughs> if I could buy those guys as Russians, just talking like Southern California surfers, <laughs> I could definitely buy F. Marie Abraham yeah. as a German, no problem, one hundred percent. Stephen Baldwin as a uh, you know Russian. 
They're not even attempting Russian accents, dude. Just the one major guy maybe tried halfway. But yeah, no, they were just like, nah, yeah, guys, nah, 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 nah. With the Russian, no, no, just your normal voice is fine. Um, because I I thought that I would bend over backwards though to hear Stephen Baldwin give a Russian accent. <laughs> I really would love to hear that. But no, this is but just I think, a few years prior to Biodome. You know what? I think that, and maybe it's because you know, as a Western audience, we sort of equate British accents with aristocracy. But it worked for me because yeah, yes. they they gave the vibe they were supposed to give, which is you know, being these haughty, stuffy rulers of the time. So, yeah, it didn't bother me. Did it bother you? Cool. Did it take you yeah. out of it? No. Oh, okay. Not at all. Cool. Yeah, yeah, same here. Well, so interesting thing, too, talking about some of those, like, really lavish buildings that they used. So um, even, like, you know, the the first grand hall where Mozart ends up delivering his little mini concerto for the king or whoever here very shortly uh, after, you know, Salieri realizes who he is. Um, it was interesting because they actually were able to use a lot of these really historic buildings and they were in great shape because for whatever reason, like the various governments and regimes that had been in power over the years, just like never decided to use these buildings for anything. So they were literally just like sitting there not doing anything. So they were like dusty as shit. But then when they like, you know, took a look, took a broom to it, spent a day with it here and there. Um, there was, like, no restoration needed at all on any of these places, like, to the point that, like, they were sort of confused, like, why are you guys not using these, like, wonderful, you know, public buildings that you guys have for things? And it was basically just like, meh, we don't have to. What are we going to use them for? No big deal. Interesting. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, and it was kind of funny, too, because um, – a lot of the people in the time, like, because, again, you know, we're talking about, like, communist regimes and there's a lot of secrecy at the highest level of these different governments in Prague specifically is where a lot of this um, was filmed. And there was the, like, for what I, I guess at the time in the early 80s, uh, there was, like, a ton of secret societies at the time because there was a lot of social unrest and various governments doing nefarious things and whatnot. So, like, basically... There was a lot of people sort of actively working against the production behind the scenes, which is interesting in and of itself because that's a direct correlation to how Salieri spends a lot of this film working against Mozart behind the scenes, right? Um, Which I thought was interesting. So one of the things is uh, there was a secret police. Secret police were huge at this time in Prague. And I guess they were just like following them everywhere and they had all of their places bugged and this and that. And so like they, you know, when they first came around talking about using these buildings, everything was hunky-dory. Then they went to go sign the leases and everyone was like, absolutely not. And they start asking around and they found out that like these rumors had started spreading where they were going to use these very like sacred, you know, and ornate public buildings to like film really gnarly orgy scenes and stuff like that and like desecrate the buildings and things like that and so like all of the local Prague government was all of a sudden like who are these Amadeus cats no like screw that we're not doing anything and so they had to like you know get time and show them the script and you know do a lot of convincing that like they weren't these gross people that they were making them out to be and then once they you know saw it was a legitimate production and everything um, they uh, you know they ended up letting them use the buildings and there's actually one specific story about this that was crazy because on top of the secret police, part of the reason you had secret police is because Prague at the time also had secret 
Cuban co- uh, revolutionaries, uh, like communist revolutionaries. And so it was funny because they were the only people in Prague who spoke Spanish and they were a very secretive organization. So what's funny is a lot of the American crew members for Amadeus were were Mexican dudes and they spoke Spanish. So when they start when they came over here, all of a sudden the American crew noticed here's these guys speaking Spanish and the guys that speak Spanish from the American crew start speaking to them and the and the revolutionaries were like trying to puff up their chest and they were like who the fuck are you? This is our place, blah blah blah, this and that to the point that they got in a huge fight a fist fight and the American crew beat the shit out of all of them, (laughs) just wailed on them. Right. But here's the thing because of the fact that they were a secret organization, they couldn't retaliate against them because then it would risk identifying who they were on a public scale. Yeah. So they just took their lumps and went back into hiding. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah, dude, there are some pretty crazy stories just because there's a lot of political unrest in Prague at the time in, in, the, in the early 80s and how that kind of manifests. So very strange. Now, shortly after that, we are indeed uh, introduced to the emperor of Vienna, played by Jeffrey Jones. Uh, if you uh, haven't heard anything about Jeffrey Jones in recent times... Don't do any digging. <laughs> Just let let that be. Let that go to the side. No reason to look into what he's been up to in the past five to ten years. Okay, just, just great actor yep. in the eighties. Let's leave it at that. And uh, he was Fer- Ferris Bueller's Day <laughs> Off. Yeah, Amadeus, mom and dad saved the world, and he died. Right, and that's the end of that. <laughs> Thank you for your service, Mr. Jones. We bid you adieu. It takes bow. Yeah, and. <laughs> So he wants Mozart in his employ. He tempts him with the offer of funding his opera uh, of his choosing. There's a quick debate of whether they should do Italian versus German. Mo- you know, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, the operas are traditionally Italian. So, you know, the purists, everything, operas always have to be in Italian. Mozart is definitely not a purist, right? He's kind of one of these guys who likes to do things differently. He's trying to take opera to strange new places, man, right? Like, so he definitely wants to do something different. He picks German. And then from there, we get the introduction of Mozart to Salieri. And this is such a great introduction because of, A, how well it illustrates all of the characters, and, B, how well it sets up the central conflict and how clearly it does so, right? So basically, the emperor has courted Mozart. Salieri has written a new piece of music to welcome Mozart to the gang, basically, right? And the emperor, who's not particularly skilled, wants to play it for Mozart. Let's, I actually have a clip of that. Let's listen real quick. Ah, Mozart. Majesty. Ah, no, please, please. It's not a holy relic. Majesty, <laughs> if you want, it's already here in my head. What? On one hearing only? I think so, sire. Yes. Show us. Same, isn't it? 
doesn't really work, does it? Did you try? Shouldn't it be a bit more? Or this? This. So, Ryan, what we see here, we've got this very sort of decent song. It's fine, and it's composed by Salieri. And it's very disrespectfully changed by Mozart, but also in a very brilliant and easily done way. And, Ryan, the interesting thing about this scene is this is another one of of Schaefer's moments where it's based in real life. So, apparently... Mozart was kind of infamous for doing this. He was sort of socially tone deaf and didn't appreciate how talented he was. So people would constantly like try to do something nice for him by coming up with these original compositions and playing music for him. And he'd totally just come in and be like, dude, that was great. Let me play around with it and just totally fuck with it and change it and make it better. And like by the end of it, like everybody was, you know, very insecure about their music. So there was actually a counselor by the name of Kunovich who was receiving Mozart, who had agreed to start teaching his daughter music. And that's what this scene was based off. He wrote the original song, played Mozart's in. Mozart totally fucked with it. The guy got super insulted and just stormed off. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, and we see that. And that's and that's a very common thing, right, with, you know, sort of these very brilliant geniuses, right, whether you're a math whiz or a creative a brilliant genius or anything, right? Like, it seems to be there's just something about, like, the more brilliant you are, the less you're able to connect with society and and people, right? Like there's just that, that thing is missing because you're so, you look at the world from such an advanced degree relative to the rest of us that you just, we can't get on that same level, right? Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of his downfall, I think. Uh, and you see it a lot of geniuses that pass early or kind of shine and get too close to the sun and then burn out, uh, you know, before... Uh, you know, after their peak is just, it's almost like they're too smart for their own good. And so yeah. they can't do, they kind of get in their own way. Mm-hmm. And that was one thing that this kind of portrayed about Mozart is that, you know, there was a very simple path to success that his father and a lot of people surrounding him, uh, even his wife, uh, were trying to keep him on to shepherd him to just chill, bro. Like you got this, you, you're got life is so easy. Like you just write the stuff you need to for the money, take the cash grab and then do your brilliant shit on the side to go crank one, you know, crank out, knock the home runs out. And so, but he wouldn't do that. Yeah. He, we just kept getting in his own way because anything that was less than him, like he knew his greatness, um, to a point where anything that was less than, uh, he wanted nothing to do with. It just wasn't worth his time. And it's like, you want me to do what for what? No. What What good is all of that? You know? And so, but then on the other side of it, you know, Salieri would have given his left nut for this level of genius. Yes. And he struggled so hard for, at the end of this film, what he called mediocrity. And, yeah. um, you know, he was the patron saint of mediocrity, I think he calls himself, which I fucking love. <laughs> oh, dude, I love that. <laughs> I feel that to my core, bro. Like, I say that I say that to myself more times than I should. I am the patron yeah. saint. I, I, Salieri salute, brother. <laughs> I feel you, bro. I, I am always yeah. trying to do better than I execute, man. Every fucking time, dude. I get it. Because he's like, you know, if I had this natural talent, what I could have done with it, and I would have made all the right moves, and I made all the right moves with my mediocrity, and it still took me all the way up to be, you know, in the emperor's, uh, you know, council and all of that. Um, So what I did with nothing 
if I only had this level of genius, what I could have done with it, right? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think the trick is to be just enough Salieri to allow you to be Mozart, you know, <laughs> in the rest of your life. You got to be Salieri in the streets, Mozart in the sheets, I think. That's the... Mo- <laughs> Love it, man. Love that's it. that's what this movie is taught me. Just kind of like skate, skate through and do the you know, like you know the the, the directors that do like one for the studio and yeah, then totally. a couple for them. It pays for your pet projects, and that's kind of uh, what. Yeah, he never, he never, he never, he never bought into that Mozart. He literally just wanted to do all of his weird indie shit and never give one to the studio. Right, yeah. right, yeah. So, but yeah, and then, and then also it sets up sort of the central theme of the film with regards to our protagonist, because let's not forget that Salieri is the protagonist of this film. This is Salieri's film, and it causes him to outwardly spite God, right? And that's definitely one of the central themes of this film is, you know, man versus God, right? And in the, the man versus God, I don't want to call it a trope, theme, Man vs. God theme has been explored in numerous different ways, right? Like, for whatever reason, one of the first things that comes to mind is actually Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump, right? On top of the sail, you know, fists raised at nature, like, give me all you got, you know, like stuff like that. So we've seen numerous different examinations of that theme of man versus God. And I think the interesting thing about this one is it's man versus God specifically as it relates to creative talent, Right. Like Salieri's entire resentment is because he is not an artistic genius to the degree that Mozart is. And that's all he wants in life. And you could say that it's, you know, there's probably a part of it that is born out of appreciation for music and appreciation for God. But you also get the sense that Salieri also just really wants to be a celebrity. Right. Like so badly wants to be loved by people, but his personality is so detached from the people that he's never, you know, he could be the most successful composer in the world. I still think he wouldn't get what he was looking for because he's, again, like the the, the defining characteristic of Salieri is he detaches himself from all of these people, you know, and he's just, he's, he's one man on a celebrity. I- I think that he just wants his due, you know? I mean, he's what you could set, like, because the movie starts as a, with him as a child, right? And and showing his uh, progression being stifled by his limit, the limitations of his father, who finally passes away. Sure. Limitations are blown off. Now he could do as he pleases and, and achieve the success. But I think he just wants what we all want, which is I work hard, I get rewarded for said work. And when you're working hard at something like creative talent, Sometimes natural God-given ability is more important. Like you could work and, and strive and practice and practice and all those things are necessary, but it's the natural ability and, and having an eye or ear for some of these things that can take you from good to great or great to legendary. Yeah. And so, and that's why only a few of these people exist and that's why they're given the celebrity. And I don't know that Salieri necessarily even wanted... Now, maybe he did, because even in his later stages, after trying to kill himself, he was trying to impress the uh, priest in the mental institution. Yeah, like he hated that he he didn't recognize his music. Do you recognize this? Right, right. So maybe you're right. Maybe he did want uh, a version of the... I think that he wanted uh, both. Yeah, I think that that he wanted... I think that he wanted... Because look, I I get it, right? So like... For example, when I started my publishing company, right, it was the same thing, right, where it's like I want to do – 
I want to do original work that nobody's read before, but I want it to be hugely successful at the same time, right? And unfortunately, right. there comes a point where you realize, like, those two things just don't coexist, generally speaking. There are exceptions, yes, but they're just that. They're exceptions, right? And I don't think that, like, he's so envious of Mozart and I don't think that it's about like there is a degree of like, OK, yeah, I put in the work. I should be respect. But this, here's the thing. He is respected. And that's the thing. Like, it's, oh, yeah. it's not that he does get his due, but for him, that's not enough. He has to be number a number one with a bullet. Right. Because he's still getting operas funded. Right. Like we see that when the later on, when the emperor ends up not only do, giving uh, Mozart five shows or whatever. And then immediately after that, Salieri gets his production and he declares it the finest opera yet made to that point, you know. Okay, so I'm going to take this one step further, and I'm going to say I absolutely have changed my mind, and I agree with you, that Salieri, in fact, wanted the celebrity because, for all intents and purposes, he's shown to be way more successful uh, in stature um, than Mozart, in the sense of, like— financially as well. Correct. This is my point. Yeah, he's working directly under the emperor and has been for a long time. He's achieved—and the emperor of Austria, I mean, um, you know— Mozart comes from Strasbourg. Vienna is seen as like one of the hubs of musical culture at this time. Mm -hmm. um, everybody wants to go to Austria. Again, um, Beethoven was born in Bonn, apparently, in Germany, and traveled to Vienna mm. uh, to go work there because it was a hub of that level of creative, you know, opera and all of these things that were going on at that time. It was seen as like the Hollywood or Manhattan of its, you know, era. So oh. uh, it's my understanding anyway. Yeah. If you're out there and you know more than me, Hats off to you. Um, you know, I've got a dog brain, so you pardon me for the little bit of research I did on this film. But, yeah, that's my understanding is that these dudes would all try their hardest to get to Vienna. And here is Salieri, to your point, uh, you know, in the heart of all of it, in the mix and advising the emperor of Austria as to who should come and go. And Mozart comes to him for approval and yeah. to say, can I do this thing? And, um, you know, Salieri is advising, you know, a part of that council looking over this. So, you know, Mozart doesn't have um, any kind of uh, hired help or bed servants, bed maids, you know, all of that, house servants. We find that out later in the film that, you know, Salieri hooks him up with some of these things. Sure. Um, Salieri is the one that gives him gold in secret mm -hmm. uh, that leads to his downfall. So Salieri's got, like life on autopilot. Yeah. What he doesn't have is the cocaine and the bitches. You know, he just <laughs> wants that rock star pink wig and the lifestyle yeah. and the whole bit. He wants the crowd and, you know, standing up for applause for him. Um, yeah, he wants the adulation. So, you know, he wants to be the guy where, you know, when he walks into the bar, everyone's like, hey, Salieri, right? Like they do with Mozart. Right. And you bring up uh, a really good point, too, that I wanted to touch on very quickly before we move yeah. on. And that is the um, you said it's, you know, you kind of touched a little bit that it's not a it's not a trope. It's a theme, um, but it is kind of a theme through all of written word in history and uh, entertainment and so forth. And that is God versus man. Right. Yeah. And it's the paradox of if God is responsible for your successes and we praise God during the wins then we also have to blame him for the losses, sure. right? Mm -hmm. Like Salieri prayed to God initially in uh, early in life, give me the talent that I might speak your voice through me and and be you know an example of your greatness mm -hmm. and perfection. Um, and when that talent was never achieved and he was only blessed with mediocrity 
uh, his words, not mine. Um, and then he sees Mozart living in sin as a heathen uh, and doing as he pleases and, and just living this rock star lifestyle. Then now you must curse God because why did you? And, and these are themes that are found in the Bible. These are themes mm-hmm. that are found in books and novels and so forth, all the way to movies and, and uh, politics. Now we're dealing with it in politics. You know, uh, if, if uh, life is, um, you know, starts at, at uh, conception and, and abortion is murder, then so must miscarriages. And we must blame God for that, not to get yeah. down that topic. But it's this, you know, paradox that we all find ourselves yeah, in. The and difficult so we realities Thank about you. some of these things. Right, right. Yeah. So we sit down at dinner, you know, the old style, you know, thank you, Lord, for this food, and we give thanks for our blessings. Well, does that mean he cursed the starving? You know, is is that God turning his back on the less fortunate? Because that doesn't seem like a good thing. So this is weird back and forth, and I don't have an answer to any of it. I'm just stating yeah. that uh, these themes are found um, right through this movie, and uh, it definitely— and um, also, really quickly, as a little ad, added tidbit, uh, every time I see— religion portrayed uh, in European cinema or art or anything. And now I've gotten the uh, great opportunity to start traveling Europe and I work over there uh, off and on or have, you know, taken several trips over there. Nice. Um, Ameri- American megachurches aren't shit, bro. Like <laughs> people talk about, oh, you know, Joel Osteen's got all this money. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Kenneth Copeland, oh, he's got eight jets. Cool. You know what the Vatican City has? Fucking, like, five million people a year taking a tour of this <laughs> church. Michelangelo painting the ceiling, gold things everywhere. Looks like Donald Trump threw up in this motherfucker. Like, <laughs> crazy, crazy business. Mega churches over in Europe are next level cool. Yeah. Uh, and just bananas to look at. It's like you walk in and your jaw hits the floor. You're like, oh, wow. And it's like, yeah, this wing was built in this century, and this wing was built as a dedication to Pope such and such. Like, dude, ain't nobody building Joel Osteen wings over hundreds of years and taking, you know, millions of people taking tours of Kenneth Copeland Ministries. That just ain't happening. Like, also probably a lot more corrupt uh, than American churches, too, as much as I, you know, I cringe to say that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, dude. I mean, they've got some competition there for sure, let's be honest. The Pope and, and, dude, I've been learning lately there was an anti-Pope, you know, (laughs) and a a regular Pope, and the regular Pope was in the Roman Catholic Church and, like, had to do with Rome and the Roman Empire was, like, super political and then... Yeah, so like, there's all kinds of crazy stuff. It's about like discovering that there's so, like antimatter. You're like, oh wait, I knew about the the matter, but there's this thing called antimatter. Oh wow, crazy. Anti pope. Yeah, it just sounds weird. The anti pope. <laughs> it was like an actual religious figure, and then the real pope was more of a political figure and was controlled by the emperor of Rome. So that's nuts. Uh, but anyway, I digress. <laughs> so yeah, well, God versus man. I thought it was really interesting to bring religion into this, and uh, you know, kind of showcase. I kind of gives you some perspective on. You know, also, um, Salieri not taking responsibility for his own shortcomings and trying to pawn it off on God as if it was not his uh, a fault of his own. Therefore, yeah. he wouldn't have to own that. He could blame that on um, a religious deity of sorts and say, well, it ain't my bad. God fucked me, so fuck me, fuck you. I'm coming <laughs> after all these motherfuckers. And so that was kind of the whole thing. Absolutely. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. I can't believe we finally made it out. I know! It's been forever since we've been on a proper date. Oh, here's our server. Oh my gosh, it's bowl of plain Greek yogurt come to life, you and McGregor. 
That's right. Hello, and welcome to Salieri's Mediocre Italian Restaurant. I'm Ewan McGregor. Have you been here before? We haven't. We've been somewhat interested. We've heard everything is just so-so. Oh, it's the most so-so. If it's your first time here, may I recommend this special this evening? It's a baked, unbreaded chicken breast with plain pasta and butter. We've cooked the chicken hours ago and just left it sitting there on the counter. Well, that sounds tolerable. We'll make it too. Okay then, I'll just get you some tap water, no ice, and be right back with those. I can't believe the most mediocre talent in the world, Ewan McGregor, is our server. Just listening to him feels like jury duty. I've heard his training to play Mike Pence in a new movie. Oh, that's perfect casting. Okay then, as ordered, the lukewarm chicken special with pasta and butter. Oh great, I'm starving. What? Wait a sec, what's this? What are these black bits here? Looks like seasoning. Seasoning? Well, this won't do at all. Waiter! Yes, yes. Is everything so-so? No. Uh, Look at here. There's seasoning in my chicken there. Oh, no. Our chef Mo has done it again. I deeply apologize. I'll rinse this off in the sink and be right back. Don't bother. I knew this place wasn't mediocre enough from the moment I walked in and Paula Cole was playing. Uh, This song only made it to 11 on the charts, sir. It's the karaoke version, and it's on repeat, ensuring the highest level of mediocrity. Eleven's too high for him. Far too high. She is Canadian, though. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, No, no, we're leaving. I've made up my mind. Honey, get your things. I'm terribly sorry, sir. I I wish I could do something. Thank you, sir, but there's nothing to be done. Where are we eating? I'm starving. We're going down the street to the most mediocre restaurant in the world. Applebee's. Come down the street to Applebee's, where none of our food has flavor. And now, back to the show. And in terms of the narrative, we've got Mozart doing his first production, which is a big hit. Salieri's envious. You know, they're talking about how it's too showy. I love the note the note that they give him after the show where they're talking about how there's like too many notes in the uh, production. But, you know, what, one thing that we also get there is, you know, he's being very flirty with the main actress. They're kind of giving each other like fuck me eyes to a degree. And also <laughs> after the show, his fiance is introduced to the emperor, at which point he's doing they're like, ha, 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 yeah, hey, hey, look at that. OK, we should all wrap this up. Huh? <laughs> um, so there's a little, <laughs> little bit of that moment there. And uh, it's it's not that far after that that they actually get married he and his fiance mozart that is and you know they're going through the typical marital her mom frau by the way phenomenal performance (laughs) i loved her over the top very comical yeah sort of the uh oh yeah uh, what is it what do we call it the uh, comic relief right yeah yeah Yeah, victorian era looney tunes style stuff yeah a little slapsticky there definitely um, with her, you know, being pulled up uh, onto the stage and all of that. But, uh, yeah, you know, and like I said, you know, as far as uh, Mozart and his wife, Constanz, or Stanzi, uh, they refer to him interchangeably, you know, the typical marital stuff, arguing about money, you know, he stubbornly refuses to take these teaching jobs and actually bring in money, and he's always like, ah, this next opera is going to be it. And they're like, we keep telling you, like, nobody makes money on their work, Right. So, you know, that's kind of to your point earlier that, you know, why he always struggled with money because he wouldn't take these teaching gigs. And, you know, we also get this scene shortly thereafter 
where the wife goes into Salieri and asks him to consider Mozart for a prestigious teaching position. And this is where he kind of has a moment where he's going to kind of play the like, ah, you know, uh, well, sure, but that's going to come at a cost. You know, show up by yourself tonight at 8 p.m. And uh, and you can pay for that, you know, and obvious insinuations being made there. And so when she comes back later, he basically like, you know, makes her strip down as if they're going to do the deed. And then, you know, when she takes her top off at the last minute, he's like uh, he rings the bell and is like, servant, servant, take her away. Right. So. Let me ask you. Ah, the 80s, <laughs> where a PG movie can have titties. <laughs> so actually, funny thing about that. First of all, you're correct. Oh, I mean, you are correct. Films could do that. I believe Airplane did that at the time. Um, but the original theatrical cut did not have that scene. It did not show her topless. Oh. That was an addition to the director's no cut. And interestingly enough, while the theatrical cut is rated PG, the director's cut is rated R specifically for that oh. scene. And I thought they would have at least given oh, that a PG-13, but no, full-on R rating for breasts, which is kind of weird. But uh, yeah, so Ryan, what do you think about that moment? Because, it, because again, this is something that was not... About breasts? Fantastic. <laughs> four stars, no notes. <laughs> Only four. Uh, I'll give it four and a half to five. No, but um, specifically... Oh, f- well, on a five-star system. Yeah. You're right, you're right. Five specifically, star. though, five what stars. I'm talking about is the... Like, how that scene plays for you in the context of the film. Because, again, it wasn't included in the theatrical cut. It was added after the fact in the director's cut. Do you think that was a scene that added to the film that should have been in there? Or do you think it should have remained cut? Good question. Um, I do think... It almost seemed to me like Salieri caught himself, right? Like, it was a low he stooped to that even surprised himself. I think that his character arc kind of bottomed out right there because he was so caught up in the moment. Because what you didn't mention is, uh, or maybe you did, uh, the scene prior where Mozart performs his first uh, situation in front of the emperor and all of that, um, the actress is Salieri's love interest. And he... Uh, Salieri, that is, finds out that Mozart has slept with the lead actress and cheated on his fiance and hooked up with Salieri's love interest. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like, dude, you have no scruples. And so you're, you're just a loose cannon and you're willing to do anything. You're just, I mean, this woman that loves you, you've cheated on her. You screwed me over. I'm trying to help you out. Um, you're obviously an idiot. And so fuck me, fuck you. I'm going to burn your, you know, house down and show that, you know, I'm not going to sleep with your, with your girl, but I will, you know, pull the bottom Jenga piece out and see if I could add some, you know, some shit to your, to the mix. Um, I thought it was kind of a sad scene because you could tell how much it upset Mozart's wife, you know, and how, uh, she was so disappointed in herself when she realized she couldn't use, uh, you know, these motives to further. Like she had, uh, like she had good intentions. I think her heart was in the right place. That this is what she saw. She had to do. I also question whether or not she knew about Mozart's infidelities. You know, if she was in on the fact that he was a celebrity and was just prone to do these things. You know, sometimes you see these. Uh, actions from celebrity wives that know that's just a part of the package deal, unfortunately, that they've been honest about it. They're in an open marriage and this person's going to have some infidelity. And so this is, you know, that's kind of the trade-off. So I wonder if Amadeus's wife 
um, knew that or not. Yeah. And so was acting out like, well, he's doing it. If I'm going to do it, I might as well get something out of it for our family and go get paid, you know? Well, so I think that um, originally when I first saw, because I've seen this film a few times now. It's probably like my fourth viewing, fifth viewing, something like that. I have the DVD. And so one of the things that I've considered is, you know. Humble brag. This guy can afford DVDs. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> Support physical media <laughs> for the 1800th time. Yeah, at least I'm consistent. But one thing that I will say is that as far as this scene for me, I when I when I used to watch it, I kind of was of that mindset. But now I feel like it's very calculated. And it's basically two things. One, it's him, Salieri, getting back at Mozart for sleeping with who he thought was his girl, even though that could certainly be argued, right? Like, it was the object of his affection, but they weren't boyfriend and girlfriend sure. or anything like that, right? So, uh, you know. And then, but also I think it's, to remind Stanzi that, like, she was willing to do that, right, as a source of embarrassment or as a source of shame. You know, like, he's not going to debase himself in God's eyes because he's already made a commitment to not doing that. I don't think that originally, I don't think he had any intention whatsoever of following through on this from the moment he proposed it. Right. I think he just no, I don't either. To, I think it was a control move. Yeah, exactly. And he just powered her. Like, I have power over Correct. your shit. Yeah. And if I wanted to, I could do this, but I won't. Yeah, and, 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 and also don't forget that, like, you would have slept with me. You took off your clothes. I said no. We all know it, though. Sure. I could have had you if I wanted you, and I chose not to. Well, so it again. adds context between Salieri and Stanzi's uh, characters throughout the film. Yes. And so every time Salieri shows up, all the way until the very end when Mozart is passing in bed and Stanzi shows back up and finds Salieri curled up on the couch asleep after writing, you know, helping Mozart write this Requiem. Um, you know, that adds tension to that. And without this scene, you don't necessarily get that as much. That's not as much of an impact because I think uh, Stanzi's character arc is impacted by this scene more than anything else, more than Salieri or Mozart. So, uh, yeah, I, I think the scene is absolutely necessary. Um, I think it, you know, comes full circle at the end of the film when uh, we find Mozart passing and, and Salieri's with him uh, and Stanzi finds them together. It's like, the fuck are you doing here, dick nuts? You know what I mean? Like, I think that that scene doesn't hold enough, as much gravitas if you don't have this scene in the beginning. Sure. Thoughts? Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And then from there, you know, to your point earlier, we've got Mozart asking Salieri to kind of help him get work as a teacher, not realizing that, like, Salieri's spreading all these rumors behind his back to keep from keep him from teaching about how he's, like, a louse and, you know, going to sleep with all the daughters and this and that. He finally does get a job, and it really doesn't go very well because they're not, you know, taking it seriously in Mozart's eyes with the dogs barking and the girl being shy and all of that. Mozart ends up bailing very quickly. Uh, but we do see that his wife is pregnant. And uh, despite that, he does take her to a raucous costume party that looked like a ton of fun, to be completely honest. Tons of masks and costumes. <laughs> Looks like a lot of drinking. Very creative. Uh, this is another aspect of uh, Schaefer's, you know, using uh, Kernels of Truth. Apparently Mozart really, really loved these costume parties and also specifically was, like, very into masks. Loved masks. So, like, he was all about this life. It's where we get the scene that's probably, arguably, you know, the most famous or one of the most famous where, you know, he's doing all the different composers and then Salieri behind his mask asks him to do Salieri and he kind of plays him like he's mentally challenged and, you know, ends up like farting a afterwards. Schlub, yeah. Right? Like, even, like, Family Guy referenced that that scene early on in one of the seasons. So, 
Um, you see a lot of references to that. But uh, but let's go ahead and let's talk, actually, Ryan, specifically about the acting here. Because, I mean, a ton of the success of this film, I would argue at least, it really comes down to the performances across the board. I think none yes. other, n- none Absolutely. more specifically than Abraham. But what was your response to uh, the acting? No, I mean, I think this is fully a character-driven film, right? So, like... Something I have here in my notes is that this movie is kind of the Golden State Warriors slash San Antonio Spurs of movies, where it's just perfectly executed. You don't have, you know, it's just fundamentals all the way across the board, but it's the performances that carry it. It's not, there's no sweeping huge rock star oneers, uh, you know, steady cam shots or helicopter shots. There's no action in the film. Um, it's just, a lot of very pointed dialogue, but more than anything, it's the the actors that carry it. And Tom Hulch and, and F. Murray Abram is, uh, you know, back and forth. And Elizabeth Barrage um, as Stanzi is fantastic. Uh, Jeffrey Jones as the Emperor is crazy good. Um, all these people just giving their absolute best, man. And that's really the only thing. I mean, you've got the locations, I guess, that were very authentic and, and the costume and makeup and all of that. But... Um, you know, it's it's Tom Hulch making the decision for the laugh of Mozart. We haven't even talked about yeah. his iconic laugh. That, uh, right. It's so high-pitched. Very So good. Very annoying. Like, you could tell, like, every time this guy walks into a room, you know, he's equally parts charismatic and annoying. And so yeah. he's kind of bratty, right? So, um, and, and Tom Hulch plays this, you know, walks that line flawlessly. Yeah, he does a great job with it, absolutely. And I think that... You know, so you know what I mean, though. Like, there's never one scene that you could lean on. Like, oh yeah, no, no, no. It's definitely it's the it's and say this, you know, and this, and what about that scene? Like, there's no rock star shit happening here. There's no Michael Jordan tongue out for sure. It's not like three showy pieces and then a bunch of banality. Like, it's just it's consistent. It's just calculated and absolutely syncopated and perfect. Yeah, all the way through. No, one hundred percent. And all of that is hinged on the performances that are going on. Everything ever. I was glued to the screen for three plus hours. Um, and that wasn't because, like I said, of any action or fight scene or drama. It, it was just a lot of, you know, sometimes two, three people in a room. You know, this movie kind of reminded me of films that we watched like um, Hard Candy or High and Low uh, that are very much in the same vein that we could give very high marks to and talk uh, perfectly about. But never once was there anything like oh, and then this and that, you know, it's not really a technical movie. It's just, and in fact, so much so that the uh, cinematographer, I don't know if you saw this, they didn't even use any lighting for this film. It's all shot in natural light, very Barry Lyndon style. Yeah, with uh, a ton of candlelight. Candlelight, (laughs) windows and diffusion and all just harnessing whatever light they could get into the room uh, via natural causes. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so Tom Hulse is really, really good as Mozart, right? He's got... Uh, the memorable, distinctive laugh that he brings to the table. And that's sort of, you know, uh, that aspect of Mozart as well is a little bit controversial, I guess. There's like a lot of discrepancies to what exactly his laugh sounded like. But they can pretty much verify that it was something that was very much out of the ordinary because they actually, like, Milos Forman was actually able to find a letter in his research from a noblewoman writing to another noblewoman and she was describing her surprise at, quote, 
the inhuman animal sound, end quote, that would escape when Mozart laughed. <laughs> Could you imagine? Could you imagine hundreds of years from now, someone describing us as such, like that Ryan Siebold, he was a nice guy, genius man, but his laughter was an it was inconceivable inhuman. animal sound. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so, you know, I'm sure they were took, took some liberties with the exact nature of it, but either way, apparently like his laugh was super super weird uh and very very grating and you know but to be honest like as far as the acting is concerned man like this is 100 like the f murray abraham show like i was like i'm not necessarily always a huge acting guy but this performance just totally blew me away man to the point that like i'm actually gonna go on record and say that for me this is easily a top 10 performance in the annals of cinematic history like probably i would even bump it up to like top five like the way in which especially not so much i will say he does a very very good job with what are the then present day scenes where they're all younger and they're doing their thing but specifically when he's playing old salieri and reminiscing about all of these different things like so many of his soliloquies and line readings are like he can take seven words and it's the most emotional seven words you've ever heard. There's, there's yeah. actually, a, I'm, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna play this right now just because I don't know, maybe there's some people out here listening that haven't like seen the movie. Um, but I'm gonna, it's, 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 it's roughly, you know, minute 75 seconds of him describing music, literally in his chair, describing the sounds that Mozart makes. And it's just like every note is pitch perfect. Let's listen real quick. On the page, it looked nothing. The beginning simple, almost comic. Just a pulse, bassoons, basset horns, like a rusty squeeze box. <laughs> and then, suddenly, high above it, an oboe. A single note hanging there, unwavering. Until a clarinet took it over. Sweetened it into a phrase of such delight. This was no composition by a performing monkey. This was a music I'd never heard. Filled with such longing, such unfulfillable longing. It seemed to me that I was hearing a voice of God. And I mean, what you've got there, like you can't see it through, you know, the audio or radio, whatever it is, but like there's just the joy and the beauty and the admiration and the sadness and the frustration. Like this guy is compounding so many different emotions and each of them is not only being expressed through his face, but as we just heard there right now, through the delivery and, you know, it's, it's awe-inspiring when it's supposed to be awe-inspiring, it's heartbreaking when it's supposed to be heartbreaking and i just i was so enthralled with this performance and just all the credit in the world but, you know, abraham man that's kind of 
Milos's thing, right? I mean, I, I, I'm not taking anything away from Peter Schaefer and, and his written words and, and his, um, you know, the experience with him because he made the Broadway play. So he's bringing that along with him. He knows these characters very well. He's lived with them for years. They're a part of his, you know, ethos or whatever. Uh, But Milos Forman, I mean, you look at his library. One thing that stood out to me, talking about character driven films and and personal films, you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. There's not like one epic scene or crazy shots or anything action based. It's very intimate and it's very mm-hmm. character based. And you feel for these characters, all of them, all the way through from Danny DeVito to Vincent Chiavelli's character, to, you know, all uh, Jack Nicholson, obviously, Chief. By the way, for I mean, uh, you and everyone listening, that's one of my top 10 films of all time, arguably top five. It's so great. Right. But then go a step further. You got People versus Larry Flint. I mean, he got Woody Harrelson uh, to, and Courtney Love to, you know, give uh, career defining performances, perhaps. Man on the Moon. Same, I mean, yeah. Jim Carrey prior to that. Dealing was, with Jim Carrey's um, madness doing method as Andy Kaufman. Like, I don't right. know if you guys saw that Jim and Andy film that was on Netflix, the documentary, but like, he was like but on no a knows. whole other yeah. fucking planet on that movie. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, was that Milos that was getting him to sink his teeth into that or, you know, how much? But, again, you know, not a lot of crazy moments in that film, but, a, um, you know, an amazing performance and, and uh, award-winning film all the way through and through. And so, you know, I just, my only uh, regret about any of this is that Milos shouldn't make more movies. You yeah. know, I wish that he, I have not seen Hair. I'd like to go back Same. and watch that at some point, but... uh yeah. 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 I, I think that this is very on brand. I think he's a character driven and a performance driven uh driven director. And so as much as I love uh, you know, Tom Holch and, and F. Murray Abram and all these guys that are in this film uh and, and what they're given, um, I I give as much credit to Milos. Oh, one hundred percent. And as a matter of fact, like Milos was instrumental in hiring F. Murray Abraham because at the time this was a role that everybody wanted. Uh, actually they, they, they can't come out and say it, but I am fairly certain that the insinuation behind one of the features that I watched was that Mick Jagger was heavily considered for the role of Mozart. Oh, wow. And yeah, um, there was a ton, a ton of names and actually it was Milos who came in and said, you know what? I don't want people bringing preconceived notions of who these characters are into the film. If we get a Mick Jagger or a defined character actor, you know, to your point, the actors bring that with them. You know, you're a defined persona. So now, you know, it's not Dude, yeah. Mozart, it's Mick Jagger playing Mozart. And the entire movie, you're going to be thinking that's Mick Jagger playing Mozart instead of buying it. Oh, he was going to play Mozart? Correct. Not Salieri? Correct. Yes. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Which you can imagine, you know, party guy, everyone likes him, attractive, banging chicks, blah, 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 right? Oh, he, was, he was the rock star of his yeah. time, so it would make total sense. But, uh, and it was actually, and so another thing too, so Milos was like, look, I don't want people bringing preconceived notions. You know, I don't want this guy playing him. Like, I want people to see Mozart as Mozart. And beyond that, he had done a ton of research. And one of the th- conclusions that he came to is, I guess, all of the portraits not all of them, but many of the portraits of Mozart from the time, they're never one and the same. Like his face, I guess, always looks kind of different. 
And so what Milos, the conclusion that he came to is that, wow, this guy must have had like a super generic face, right? He definitely wouldn't, <laughs> he definitely would not have been a leading actor with, you know, very chiseled and defined features. He must just have this very average face and disappears into a crowd because every painting of him is, is different. No one can uh, kind of agree on what he looks like. He's like, yeah, so I need to just find a white guy. Yeah. He's like, so we need that needs to be taken into consideration. We need to hire somebody who just looks like an absolutely average white dude who would not be a leading man. And then, you know, to your point, Peter was probably like, well, I know this Tom guy from back in the day. Excellent. Well, let's get him out here and see what's up. Right. Uh, so that, you know, was 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 hugely. And to your point, you know, uh, any any other director probably just goes, Wow. Mick Jagger, oh man, get him over here, right? And Milos is like, no, no, dude, dude, like, no. (laughs) You got to think, though, so a couple things. One, Mick Jagger has not an average white face. Um, (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) that's his point. Yeah, that was his point. Like, everyone's going to know that's Mick Jagger. That guy is a caricature of himself, of himself. Yeah. Uh, Also, you need to go, everyone listening uh, needs to go back and watch the David Bowie dancing in the street music video. <laughs> One of the most ridiculous or not, examples. Or maybe not. Maybe watch 20 In the history of cinema. <laughs> this is the era of Mick Jagger, by the way, that we're discussing. Yes. 19, that video comes out in 1985. I just looked it up while Cocaine we were talking. Jagger all the way. Oh, dude. So go watch that and then picture <laughs> that Mick Jagger doing this movie and uh i'd be very curious what that would look like i would watch it i would watch the fuck out of three hours of it. <laughs> by the but way i don't know that it would win eight oscars since we're on the whole nature of like people what people look like at the time outside had did you see what f marie abraham looks like outside of this film during this era i don't know that i did Dude, he looks right at home selling cocaine over your way in Miami, dude. Like really? he has got like Hawaiian shirt, top three buttons open, hairy chest. Oh like, yeah, baby. Just seeming like a you know very expressive. Like oh man, it was like he looked like a like he looked like the pilot from like every oh, Miami shit. Vice episode that he flies like, the cocaine yeah. over. He looks like classic Ricardo Montalban. Yeah, it's so funny. So, like, the first time I saw that, I was like, that's Salieri? Like, you oh expect my this very gosh. buttoned up, classically trained actor, right? Like, and then you just get this, like, yeah, cocaine cowboy guy. And you're like, what the hell? He's Wide even colors. better than I thought. Yeah. Bravo, sir. You are an actor and a half. The suit, <laughs> the popped wide collar, the little fro. <laughs> this dude, yeah. He's a villain yeah. on like A Team or Miami Vice. Yeah, or- any of these things, dude. Yeah, it was so nice. And as a matter of fact, he actually plays a gangster in Scarface. Oh, he was nice. on. He was shooting Scarface when he got the call from his agent that he was going to be playing Salieri. He was on set. Phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal. Method yeah, acting so- in Scarface. Probably. <laughs> yeah, this guy's all Studio Fifty Four out, man. I'm looking at it right now. It's it's amazing, dude. It's yeah. it's fantastic. Anybody listening, please go check out. You know, F. Marie Abraham uh, pictures. You know, just he looks nothing like Salieri, and you could just, I mean, dude, you can tell he's a good time, right? He's, he's, he seems like a guy you want to go hang out with. At oh the yeah, club, for sure. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the one thing I will say too about that as well is part of the reason that Milos hired him is again, he felt like he was Salieri because I guess at that point F Murray had been trying to stake his claim in film. It just wasn't happening. He did a lot of theater 
And I guess he was kind of known for being like a bitter dude, F. Murray Abraham, because, you know, he worked really, really hard at his career and it never really took off. Hmm, does that sound like anybody that we might know in context of this film? Um, and so he was like, dude, like, and so I guess because of that, uh, his personality is a little bit standoffish. And so Milos was just, dude, we're checking off all the boxes with this guy hiring sure. already. Right. <laughs> so, and then as far as the film's concerned, uh, as we come back, this is where his dad shows up. Mozart's dad, that is. And, you know, Mozart's dad was actually very instrumental in his success. Unlike Salieri, he took Mozart under his wing when he was young. And part of the reason that Mozart was able to do all this stuff at a very young age of five years old, obviously natural ability plays a degree, but his father taught him everything that he knew at that point. So his father was a musician himself, recognized this talent in his kid, which is funny because they never really touch on that for the rest of the movie. They always present his father like he's like he's sort of like the disapproving non-artist, you know, who just wants his son to be like a contractor or something. Right. Um, but apparently he was very musically oriented and knew a lot about music. And that's part of the reason that they also had such a strong relationship is because Mozart was always very thankful to his dad for teaching him all this stuff at a young age. And again, you know bitching about his wife not keeping the house clean and she's like you don't know what it goes into that's when you know to your point from earlier the uh, girl shows up who's a housekeeper who was supposedly paid for by one of his adoring fans who wishes to remain anonymous but as it turns out it's actually Salieri who is paying this girl to spy on him right that's what this is all about so played by sex in the city's own Cynthia Nixon oh that was Cynthia Nixon wasn't it how about that yeah, very totally. young. Huh. Very young, Cynthia. Very young, yeah, 15, 16, something like that. Yeah, that's funny. But, yeah, so a little bit later, you know, everyone's out of the house. Salieri and them sneak into the house to see what this secret play uh, that Mozart's working on, right? Because he's making a big deal about the secret play. And they turn out it's a play about the marriage of Figaro, which apparently has been banned in Vienna because it's a French film. Not a French film, a French theatrical production. And it's kind of known for causing some unrest and riots because it touches on, you know, class uh, unrest and such. And so, uh, you know, it's been banned from Vienna. Mozart is able to convince the emperor to overturn the ban as well as overturn the fact that he can't have ballet in the play. And Salieri's kind of pissed. I thought it was funny how, uh, before you move on really quickly, I want to touch on the fact that I, I just thought it was funny, the contrast of like how even back then, and throughout history in general, art has always taken the blame for, you know, civil unrest and, and you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the pores being upset. Never the politics or the right. society. It's the no. art. Yeah, yeah. that's it. That, that movie is why we all suck. Video games, that's what's going on. Gotta slap a parental rating on this Marriage of Figaro shit. We gotta end this. It's <laughs> upsetting the pores. The pores are upset. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. 100% uh, spot on. And, you know, the funny thing is that Salieri thinks this play is wonderful, as does Mozart. It's the best play he's ever made that's ever been made, as far as Mozart's concerned. And, but the emperor doesn't believe so. The emperor shows up to auditions and finds himself yawning, bored. He only gives him a few days of the production, of which Mozart is rightfully pissed. Now, Ryan, one other very interesting story that I have to share with you about when they were shooting this scene um, in, in, in the concert hall with this particular production that's going on. So they were actually filming this scene on the 4th of July. Okay. And so they've got, you know, it's, it's all the extras are there and all of the extras are natives of Vienna, right? 
or I'm sorry, natives of Prague, which is where they're filming the movie. And so it's the 4th of July. Milos calls for playback and unexpectedly all, all of the extras and all of the actors and everybody stands up and, uh, and from the stage, a giant American flag unfurls itself and falls and, and falls down and drapes itself across. And this entire concert hall filled with uh, people filled with Prague nationals begin singing the na- the American national anthem as a oh, show wow. of respect to the American crew on the 4th of July. And, and Milos got really scared watching all of these like native foreigners sing the American national anthem because it was a communist regime. And he <laughs> thought that he was going to be arrested for like anti-national sentiment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and on top of that, he said it was very funny because he's talking about it and he goes, Everybody's standing up. Hundreds of people singing this song is very wonderful, except for about 30 people that have remained seated and are looking around very panicked. And it would turn out that it's because they were the secret police. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they had no idea how to respond to what was going on in the moment. They didn't know <laughs> if it was a coup. They didn't know what the hell was happening. They obviously weren't brought in because they weren't part of the crew. They were brought in later after the fact and just snuck in there. And so, yeah, he said there was about 30 secret police freaking the hell out. Didn't know like, what the uh, hell was going on. Do we? Uh, <laughs> ooh, boy. Because, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Westernized so democracy and, commu- uh, you know, Eastern communism. Uh, not so hot. <laughs> not so hot back in 1984. Yeah, 84 was uh, kind of a boiling point for that. So, yeah. so soon thereafter mozart finds out that his father passes this has a great effect on him Uh, we see it impact a lot of the decisions that he makes moving forward goes into a state of mourning starts drinking even more than he used to and makes this very dark play about the angel of death and he's going a little bit crazy and salieri kind of recognizes the hold that his father has on on mozart psychologically and kind of comes up with a nefarious plan that he's going to put into effect in just a little bit separate from that we have a theater owner who has this sort of like vaudeville type of theater that plays to a lot more of like the commoners and there's a lot more fantasy and it's more lowbrow so to speak and he basically tells mozart that if he can come up with a play for him that's a little bit more fanciful he'll give him half of the receipts on the back end. And Stanzi, his wife, is like, hey, that's great, but uh, how much on the front end? And he just starts cackling, right? Like, so, you know, this is a place where he's going to have creative freedom. They obviously don't make much money. They're not selling, you know, expensive tickets to high-class people. And so his wife is basically just like, dude, don't even bother with this. But he really wants to do it. Uh, I believe, they don't really say it directly, but I believe that the production that he ends up making for them is the Magic Flute which is definitely the most fanciful one that he's ever done. Okay. Um, yeah. So because there's a couple because she's there's a couple references like she's like you've got magic she's like you've got witch queens and magic flutes and all this ridiculous nonsense and I'm like oh I think this is a magic flute. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, now one thing I do want to touch on here, uh, interestingly, real quick, the actress who plays Stanzi or Constance is an actress named Elizabeth Barrage. Now, interestingly, she was not the original choice. The original choice was an actress by the name of Meg Tilly. And it just so happened what? that, yeah, exactly. And it just so happened that, so every, so 
Also, let me back up. There was a very interesting thing where the, they had actually secured locations to shoot this film in. And I, and it and for whatever reason, the entire year that they had blocked out to like shoot whenever the weather called for it, there was no snow whatsoever. It was like the one year that they didn't have any snow here, despite the fact that they always had snow here. And so they would kind of just be sort of like on call waiting for when the season would pick up, at which point, okay, cool, everybody get over there. You know, we're going to shoot. We've got snow. And so apparently this happened and they called Meg Tilly and she's like, hey, uh, Turns out three days ago I was playing soccer and tore my ligaments in my leg. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, and they're wow. like, oh, well, uh, we're shooting in three days. Can you can you walk in three days? No, the doctor says about five weeks. Ah. Well, sorry to tell you, you're no longer Stanzi. Thank you very much. Hope the soccer game was fun. <laughs> and so they basically go out and they're like, shit, dude, what are we going to do? We have to find a new actress in like three to five days. And apparently they just called everyone they knew. And like the next day they had like 40 actresses out there, 50 actresses trying out for this part of Stanzi. And it came down to two actresses, one of whom was Elizabeth Barrage and another is uh, who is not Elizabeth Barrage. And so it came down to the two of them and Milos couldn't decide. And he basically had both of them come back for the next three to five days. And then finally everyone was like, Milos, like you have to make a decision. And he was like, OK, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, so Mozart's wife, real Mozart's wife was a landlady's daughter. OK, she was not high royalty which means she was probably on the side of a little less attractive than a little more attractive. Elizabeth, you're a little bit less attractive than the other actress. We're going with you. <laughs> <laughs> you said Meg so, Tilly. Because, I was thinking about her sister, Jennifer Tilly. Oh, that would have been something, but no. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, no, she's also a lot of fun as like, you know, the voice of like Miss Chucky and all of that. So, so good. Yes. Yeah, but um, but yeah, so no, 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 her sister Meg. And yes, yeah, so uh, they ended up going with uh, Miss Elizabeth Barrage, which Ryan, I was actually uh, talking to my wife earlier about this day. Like uh, part of doing the research for these things, like these random connections will come up from, from just looking at this. So, you know, I, I'm looking into Elizabeth Barrage. Just read a quick IMDb. Oh, wow. She hasn't done a single thing I've ever heard of outside of this film, except for Hidalgo, which I know because it was a huge flop. Uh, but... Right there in the facts, next to spouse, for 20 years, it turns out she has been married to one Kevin Corrigan. Would you believe that? <laughs> yes, the three-point continues. <laughs> so shortly after that, Ryan, we've got Salieri arriving at Mozart's house, and he's wearing the same black cape and double-sided mask that his father was wearing earlier, which obviously instills a sense of intimidation into Mozart, who's a little loopy on account of the drinking and uh, not doing so hot. And he hires him to write a requiem because he knows that ultimately it's going to basically drive Mozart mad. And he's basically trying to come up with some way to kill Mozart without killing Mozart, right? Without doing anything that he might be thrown away for. And so he comes up with this scheme and he's going to basically just drive him mad kill him that way. And so Mozart begins to work on this Requiem and it just gets him in worse and worse shape. But we've also got this vaudeville owner who's getting impatient for, like I said, what I believe ends up being the magic flute. There is a device that Milos uses where he's kind of cutting to the painting of his father in this very sort of dramatic close-up. And the painting hangs above, you know, towards the top of the wall so that his father's always looking down on Mozart as he's working. And I really like the way that they reinforce that theme visually by cutting to that and reminding us 
And, you know, the other thing too, Ryan, real quick, we haven't even talked about the pacing. Like, I don't know about you, but for me, this was a three hour film that totally flew by. Right. And even with the director's cut, like you can argue that a lot of that, that, that there are a number of scenes that aren't 100% integral to the plot, but every scene had a connective tissue. You know, it, 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 it preceded the, the scene that would follow, right? It was always a very logical progression of one, this scene leads to this scene, leads to this scene, leads to this scene. And even when it wasn't, even if it wasn't essential to the, 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 the through line, it was still advancing the story and the plot and the characters, et cetera. I thought, I thought it was really strong in that regard. Again, it's all performances, man. I mean, for a three-hour movie to be this engaging and not have me looking at my phone and, like, taking a break and this and that... Um, you know, the, without any like major action points. I mean, think about what movies are three hours long, right? And and yeah. you know, usually they're carried by at least a couple of high stakes action pieces, or you know, something heavily dramatic. Or this was just kind of a slow moving, well paced film that was so engaging based on the performances and um and the dialogue and and because you know we're talking about classical music and this in this cat and mouse and this you know uh classical um you know era austria very unrelatable it's not like i could see myself you know in these moments normally um this movie probably shouldn't have worked this is another one of those that probably shouldn't have worked for you know in the way that it was done and yet I fucking loved this movie. Uh, it was so, so done. Yeah. Well done. To, to, um, to your point, I actually watched this movie for the first time, like, I'll say late high school. Okay. And late high school, Jason, exclusively listens to Pantera okay. and Metallica yep. and Slayer and plays football and video games and is awkward and doesn't know how to talk to people. And, like, to your point, not a kid that should want anything to do with a three-hour film about composers. And I loved this film the wow. first time I saw it at, like, yeah. 16, 15, whatever it is. So, like, to your point, to be able to transcend all of these qualities that would generally be not attractive to somebody in that position, right? Like, bravo, well done. Well, I, I love the the kind of yin and yang element to uh, Salieri and Mozart's characters because it has a very, um, it reminded me of like movies like uh, Catch Me If You Can was one that stood out to me where, you know, with Tom Hanks's character and uh, Frank Abagnale played by uh, Leo DiCaprio and so much as like Tom Hanks's whole purpose is to go get this um uh, character played by Leo and and in the end they find out that they kind of needed each other and one did yeah. not exist without the other coaxing them and and bringing out the best in what they could do and I thought that that cat and mouse Tom and Jerry um, Elmer Fudd Bugs Bunny scenario of these two characters you know one does not become what he is, you know, perhaps without the other challenging him and, uh, to, sure. and to feed off of, um, Joker, Batman, Billy, the kid, Pat Garrett, you know, I mean, there's all these, uh, paradoxical, you know, uh, relationships that kind of bring out the best in one another. Um, yeah. To you your know, magic point, Johnson, the, uh, Larry Bird, you know, <laughs> the one it reminded me of was actually the film whiplash, you know, thinking about JK Simmons, yeah. and Miles Teller's character. Sure. Absolutely. Very, very good uh, comparison. So, yeah, I thought that um, that because, you know, then you take 
that element of it and the in these you know exceptional performances and the era and the classical music and all of that just becomes a byproduct and not really the focus so it's not a focus on a composer these are relatable characters that just happen to do this thing you know and you could kind of cut and paste these amazing performances and they could have been anything you know really um like what we're saying you know yeah. you, you could find these relationships throughout entertainment but uh yeah this was just the best version of that definitely absolutely and then we've got mozart basically succumbing to the pressure of having to do the requiem and he can't figure out a way to finish the magic flute or bring it all together and you know so he basically like kind of snaps a little bit sneaks out to go drink and party right comes back home to find the wife and kid are gone all their shit's packed up tired of your crap mozart getting the hell out of here and I really like the next scene as well where he's getting yelled at by his mother-in-law and then that creates the inspiration for him to finish the magic flute and create the, like, queen character that's up on the moon, like, delivering, you know, her vocal melody that she does. And, you know, he's composing this play. He's finished it finally and it's going over well. But he's in bad shape. You know, he's all sweaty, can barely stand, and he ends up passing out during the performance, at which point Salieri takes him home and we sort of set up the... Uh, you know, climax of the film, you know, in, in a, again, similar to what we're talking about, where they sort of have to come together a little bit, so to speak, even if it's ultimately, you know, they're having different approaches, right? Like Mozart thinks Salieri is genuinely helping him. Salieri knows that he's ultimately killing him. And so, and yeah, and, uh, you know, to your point, Ryan, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of very interesting details that kind of Milos Forman brought out in this film. So one of the things, you know, he's kind of big and, and I believe it's kind of, you know, plays into everything that you've been talking about. He's very big on like subtle details, not calling attention to things. Right. So he's kind of one of these things who's like, you know what, we're going to do this the way it would really do. And this is going to be going on in the background. We're not going to call attention to it, but the audience's subconscious mind will be noting, noticing this. Right. And that's going to play into how much buy-in they have. So he was, for example, very big on making sure that as the night progressed for his scenes, for the performances, that the candles that were on all of the different chandeliers would be appropriately burned, right? That they were steady progression. So if you actually sit there and pay attention to the candles in all of these films, uh, you'll see that they, they, they never break consistency. You know, they're not taller one shot, lower the left. Like he was on his shit and he was making sure that like, and he was talking about how his like script supervisors always hate him because of the work that he asks <laughs> them to do. And another example of this is that with the priest character. So they shot that whole thing with old Salieri and the priest over like nine days or something like that. And if you pay attention over the course of the film, he once again challenged his script supervisor to make sure that the priest's beard subtly grows over the course of the entire film. So he like walks in more or less clean shaven at the beginning. And by the end, he's got like a five o'clock shadow. And it's just a very consistent progression throughout the entire film of that. And he's like, nobody, nobody notices these things, but I do them because I feel like they do notice them. It's just on a subconscious level. Love it. Yeah. Total, total rock star, dude. Total rock star. And then we've got, you know, again, the, the final scene, it's Salieri is tending to Mozart. You know, the actors do come by from the production to check on him and as well as deliver the money from the house. But Salieri collects it and is able to say that it was the man in black. And he's going to give him a, on top of this, he's going to give him a huge bonus of like another hundred whatever's of the currency at the time. If he can finish the, 
Requiem in 24 hours, even though he knows it's going to kill him. And, you know, he gets... Salieri convinces Mozart to, you know, say yes, and then Mozart asks if Salieri will dictate the music to him that he will write, and Salieri agrees. And, you know, we get a really wonderful, wonderful final scene where, you know, uh, the way that, like, Milos introduces the notes individually as Mozart's sort of playing them out. And there's also this really sort of great back and forth between the two as Hulse is sort of narrating, Hulse is, as Mozart is narrating the composition and, you know, but he's also kind of, he's basically dying at this point, right? Like he's trying to get this out before he dies, but he's dying at the time and Salieri's interpreting. And what's interesting, Ryan, is that uh, Hulse actually made a very interesting acting decision. So what he would do is as he would go through and narrate these different, uh, this this symphony to Abraham, he would intentionally leave out certain lines or like intentionally forget certain things and just gloss over them to elicit these very natural reactions from Abraham, like, you know, trying to figure out what he's saying or like, you know, you can see Abraham like hearing what he's saying, but thinking it's differently and trying to not sure how to respond. So a lot of those reactions that you get are very natural reactions to whole sort of improvising what information he did and didn't communicate and Abraham, you know, responding with a sort of very natural frustration to that. Sure. I mean, again, very performance based film, you know, and, the, and yeah. it's focusing on how you can extract that and and how these relationships build on set to derive that in into the the theater or film. So yeah, this is, uh, you know, we're going to get to that in my adjectives, but I definitely bring that up. It's just, uh, this is flawless, flawless victory. Yeah. And, and, and in keeping with the whole, you know, Schaefer using nuggets of truth, um, apparently, well, uh, apparently Requiem, Mozart's final composition was in fact, uh, dictated to, um, but it was actually one of his pupils, uh, a pupil by the name of Sussmeyer, who interestingly enough was also a pupil of Salieri's before he was a pupil of Mozart. So there's a kind of an interesting connection there. Huh. And then, yeah, so – and then by the time the family arrives, you know, Salieri's asleep in, in the bed and, you know, his wife goes – Mozart's wife, that is, Constance, goes to wake him up and we see that he has died. Right. Now, uh, Ryan, do you know anything about Mozart's actual death? No. And so um, I actually looked this up uh, in doing some notes, and I guess there's some discrepancy on his actual cause of death. Um, nobody really knows, but uh, at least that's what in my research what I found. So I have in my notes here, uh, Mozart died of being awesome because that's what- – <laughs> Well, so I, I actually uh, – they talked about this, and uh, uh, Schaefer and, and Foreman did, did actually – and it's kind of an interesting story. So it's one of two things. Either he died from syphilis or he died from mercury poisoning. Oh. Now, here's the story, okay? Mozart was a philanderer, okay? He slept around. And it just so happened that at this time in their life, they lived on a second floor of, of – and, and beneath them was a brothel. <laughs> Which oh, is wow. kind of basically for someone like Mozart, like being an alcoholic and living above a bar, right? Right. And so there was uh, one particular prostitute that he was particularly fond of. They struck up a relationship, and it's understood that she gave him syphilis. Now, here's the thing. At the time, it was believed that the cure for syphilis was mercury. 
So Mozart at this time starts drinking gallons and gallons of mercury all the time. Oh, okay? wow. On that ivermectin yeah. shit. Yeah, baby. <laughs> now, here's the funny thing about mercury. You know, we always hear about, oh, mercury poisoning, mercury poisoning. Apparently, you can only get mercury poisoning if your kidneys have failed. Now, your kidneys can fail from, uh, you know, too much exposure to mercury in time. But apparently, Mozart was kind of known for putting a bunch of shit in his body, specifically in liquid form. Like, he was a big drinker in terms of alcohol, but he was a big drinker in terms of liquid. So water, juice, alcohol, apparently the guy was just always drinking shit. And so when it came out that, like, supposedly mercury could cause syphilis, dude just starts drinking a ton of mercury. So it's either the case that he died from syphilis or he had failed kidneys and died from mercury poisoning that he was using to try to cure the syphilis. Now, one other little interesting note. It is believed in history, and again, this isn't a 100% fact. It is believed in history that one prostitute killed two musical geniuses. Here's why. This prostitute was uh, Mozart's girl, right? Mozart, very much a philanderer. So apparently Mozart and his wife, for a time, went to go live with this count and his wife. And it just so happens that Mozart started banging the count's wife. Now, the count's wife is still sleeping with the count, and the count also happens to have a mistress on the side, right? This mistress wasn't just one person's mistress. She was several persons' mistress. mistress. And on top of this count... It just so happens that one of her other lovers was one Mr. Ludwig von Beethoven. Oh, nice. Beethoven died from syphilis. Mozart arguably died from syphilis. Possibly transposed the syphilis down the line to Beethoven. How nuts is that? And the Count from Sesame Street did it all. Fucking guy. (laughs) So, yeah, again, uh, you know, a little bit of controversy to that story, but very, very possible that uh, that happened there. Oh, so, uh, and then- real quick, uh, for the listeners, um, if you're out there like me and you're like, what even is syphilis anyway? And you're, uh, you know, inclined to Google said thing? Don't. don't. <laughs> don't. I just Googled syphilis. And it's a bad situation. Just Yes, it's gross. It is me- not visually appealing. It is not an invisible <laughs> disease. Let me save it lets you, you know all. it's there. <laughs> yeah, if you're listening on the way to work, I'm here to tell you it is way too early right now for you to be listening, uh, you know, looking up syphilis at 8 a.m. on your drive to don't do it. Put your phone down. Absolutely. And then, you know, the film wraps up proper. We've got Mozart's body carried away in a carriage in the rain and the body's dropped in a mass grave, which apparently, by the way, they used to do for um, uh, like poorer citizens. They would actually have like rented caskets and you would just like rent the casket and then they drop the body off and then bring the casket around and throw another dead body in. And it was just like the rent casket when you couldn't afford an actual casket. Sure. Yeah. Like so, the, uh, we- like the, the cheap golf clubs at a, a community golf yeah. course. <laughs> or like the, uh, like the, uh, the gross socks that they give you at the bowling alley. Oh yeah. 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 That's a better, <laughs> that's even better. <laughs> or, or trying on shoes at the, you know, the, the shoe stores. Yeah. Oh, yeah get them the, uh, the, the loner socks. Ah. Or like but, the syphilis uh, and- whore that you get at the, <laughs> that everybody's used that too. Apparently. At the syphilis store. Yeah. You know, <laughs> oh, yes. and then of course we get the, uh, the final scene with old man Salieri and uh, just, you know, perfectly, 
I mean, one of the central theses of the film is just, you know, the feeling of mediocrity compared to creative genius or any sort of genius. And I believe that's encapsulated in this final line where Salieri is whisked away from the priest. It's, you know, time to go get his food or his treats or whatever it is. And he's whisked away, just leaves the priest there in silence who doesn't even know how to respond after this, this, this entire story, right? And the exact uh, line that he delivers is he says, I speak for all mediocrities in the world. I am their champion, their patron saint. And then is whisked away and he absolves all of these, well, frankly, mentally ill people, which was kind of a weird way to end it, but I don't think he needed to absolve them as mediocrities. But either way, the uh, the, the whole, you know, point is taken. Uh, he just, you know, he just felt like he was never what he wanted to be. He wanted to be Mr. King Dingling and everything that came along with it. And here was this Mozart cat that just constantly, constantly reminded him that he wasn't. And then the film is over and that's Amadeus. Ta-da! Ta-da! Couple things real quick uh, before we move on. Um, in the party scene where uh, we talked about earlier uh, that Amadeus is mocking Salieri and all that, he plays one of his pieces of music upside down under the piano. Um, mm-hmm. And I was curious if that wasn't uh, some motivation for Rami Malik in Bohemian Rhapsody playing Freddie Mercury, because in that film they show him riding the bones of Bohemian Rhapsody upside down under the piano. Yeah. Um, so. I think that was just one of those showman things that people did when they were yeah. brilliant pianists as they would, you know, play I it upside down or backwards or whatever. had seen that film and not this one. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, hey, you know, I wonder if that has anything to do with it. <laughs> yeah, totally, man. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's go ahead as we do at the end of this film. We got a couple things to do before we go. First of which is three adjectives. Ryan, what you got? My first one is diesel engine. Uh, I was expecting more sports car when I saw this. Uh, I thought it was going to be about the lavish promiscuity, uh, you know, the the rock star lifestyle of a Amadeus Mozart and, and his, you know, wild promiscuity and all of that. But uh, no, this was a slope moving, just well paced. I mean, uh, you know, in the same way that a diesel engine will get you 200,000, 300,000 miles, um, you know, the sports car will go fast and furious for you know, a hundred thousand miles to start to shit out. Uh, this movie was meant yeah. uh, to go a long time and keep you engaged the entire time. It was perfect. Uh, next one is acting class. This is a master class in acting and performances, as we stated many times throughout this episode. Um, yeah. Cause that's what the first diesel engine is carried on is, to, I mean, that's, it's gasoline is just these performances. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, no notes is my last one because it's just flawless. <laughs> Um, I do wish if I could ask for something, uh, I wish that it was a little more fun at times, um, because some of it is just so it's that diesel engine and and you kind of do want a little Porsche in there sometimes, but, uh, yeah, man, I mean, this is portrait of a man on fire. Uh, you know, I know we did our version of it. (laughs) It was a little different, but this is, you know, if, 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 uh, you know, portrait of a lady on fire is about two women that don't know they need each other and bring out the best in each other. And, um, when they can no longer have each other, uh, they both feel lost in their own ways. This is very much the same about dudes, you know, and uh, and ego and all the things that fuel men, and, and especially in this era uh, of the world. Portrait of a man on fire, Amadeus, uh, no, no notes. <laughs> 
Which, by the way, if anyone listening is kind of new to the show and has not been around since the first season, we what Ryan's referring to is a sketch that we did called Portrait of a Man on Fire that is absolutely ridiculous and I still love to this day. I love – that's – it's like one of our more like meta sketches where we're just like, oh, yeah, it takes place <laughs> in the past. But then there's like a current day surfer that shows up and it's just nonsense, but it's hilarious. It reminded me of like a kids in the hall sketch or something. They are all very much nonsense, but that is one of my faves. Yes. <laughs> all right. My three adjectives. First is lavish. Right. This is just a, a beautiful production, you know, from the costuming to the sets to the locations these wonderful buildings, these grandiose concert halls, most of which were the actual concert halls that Mozart and these guys delivered these productions in. By the and way, dude, we didn't even talk about this, but uh, they made this movie for a budget of only $18 million, um, you know, which it just looks like more money on the screen. I adjusted for inflation, and that brings it up to $50 million today, which by today's standards is like peanuts. So, yeah, yeah. no, they did a great, great job there. And yeah, and it actually at the time it made close to a hundred million dollars, which was I mean, films didn't make a hundred million dollars back then, so that was it was a huge, huge hit. The, my other uh, adjective is engaging. Uh, this is just a film, like I said, you know, for a three-hour film, I was into it every single second along the way. I never got bored, never tapped out, never wasn't interested. I, you know, the, the one thing that I will say, the one, the one thing that you could argue the film is pretty indulgent with is some of the performances in the final third of the film. I'm not talking about acting performances. I'm talking about the actual productions of the operas themselves, right? Yes. Like there's times where, you know, they're just going through each production he made and they'll show three minutes of it. So, you know, it's like half an hour of kind of watching productions when you kind of stack it all together, probably, or yes. 20 minutes, 15 minutes. It's it. So I, I, if, if anybody out there feels like, Oh, you know, they were kind of indulgent with the level of productions and the amount that they showed, I would totally get that. I, I just so happened. I, I mean, I'm not an opera guy. I'm not even really a theater guy at all, but I really enjoyed the productions. I thought they were interesting. I really liked the parody one that they did with like the horse, you know, and the sort of the one for like the commoners, the vaudeville one. That was a lot yep. of fun. The angel of death was great. You know, so a lot of these, um, a lot of these performances I could see maybe slowing down the film a little bit, but for someone who doesn't enjoy classical music or opera, I have to say I was quite engaged. And then the final adjective, my only hyphenated one, astonishingly acted again, top 10 performance of all time from F Marie probably top five and 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 again made only more impressive knowing that his default persona is cocaine cowboy circa 1983 miami <laughs> <laughs> so it's time to formalize this ryan what is your grade rating i'm giving this a straight ahead a nice no arguments there uh for me i gotta go i gotta go perfect man i gotta go full five out of five i just it's a you know if it's not a flawless film, the handful of flaws that it does are very easily overcome. And interestingly enough, uh, you know, I, I actually would say, like, I wouldn't mind if they restored the theatrical cut. I, I, you know, the one thing I will say is I think that a lot of the 20 minutes that made it into the director's cut, like, weren't really necessary. The, you know, there was definitely the topless scene, which you argued, you know, but that's really only a couple minutes. We can leave that one in. Um, maybe the scene where he gets the job and, you know, with the dogs and everything, but we probably could have cut that out. So, you know, I actually think, you know, for as well as it played as a three hour film, like 
for it to be 20 minutes shorter, it would just play that much quicker and leaner. And I wonder if it would even be that much of a better experience. But either way, still getting the full five out of five stars for the director's cut from old Jason here. Hey, just just leave me the boobs, all right? You could take the other 18 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I and will, so- uh, real quick, uh, two things I learned. Um, I never knew the cover art or poster art for this film. That was his father. Or supposed to be his dad looming over the whole bit in the black shroud uh, with the big makes sense. helmet and all of that. When he uh, embraced yeah. his son and was silhouetted by the light of the window and he raises his arms to embrace his son coming up the stairs, um, you know, his headpiece and the cape with the outstretched arms um, yep. looking on was uh, the cover art for this film. Also, I um, scoured the interwebs because I couldn't drop my fictitious theory that Falco's Rock Me Amadeus was uh, <laughs> inspired by the release of this film. And so much as Rock Me Amadeus came out in 85, this movie came out in 84. I'm like, who's making shit about Amadeus Mozart back to back? Like, of course you watch this movie. <laughs> it won eight Oscars for Christ's sake. So uh, I did find, I think, two art- uh, articles on, um, you know, websites I've never heard of. And God damn it, I'm sticking with it. They have supported my theory. And uh, so it is true. Factual. Falco, Falco's Rock Me Amadeus, a direct lift from this movie. So for everyone listening, yes, without any evidence to actually verify this, we are saying 100% true. That's that. Absolutely. Yes. Just go with me on this. Trust me. No one's going to argue with you. Just say it at cocktail no, parties. It's 2022. We live in an era of alternative facts anyways. It doesn't have to be true. You just have to think it's true. That's enough I for everybody. I do it on this show all the time. I just make shit up <laughs> and no one has questioned me on it. We've given you email addresses. We've given you our private Instagram and Twitter accounts. <laughs> Nobody's come at me except for the one thing I was right on, which is fucking Dale and Tucker <laughs> versus evil. And they came out of the yep. woodwork for that one on they their little high did. horse and soapboxes. Ugh. And for anyone listening, if you would like to pop out of the woodwork and reach out to us, we would definitely recommend you do that. You can do so in a number of different places. We have got The Socials, Esoterica Cinema on Twitter and Instagram. Also at gmail.com. You can go ahead and email us there. Uh, Ryan and I are available individually at the Ryan Seabold, Ryan underscore Seabold and Jason Aberrant, 1B2Rs, respectively. And then, of course, we have the website, esotericacinema.com. Go there for updates and all sorts of information about the program, where else you can see myself and Ryan. And, of course, to download our master list that we pull from at the end of every single episode that we're going to go ahead and do right now. Yes. Using, of course, our random.org true number generator it is my favorite parts of the day, my friend. It's when I get to see how my week is going to go. 100%. Also, I'm really, really hoping it is my dream one day. So, like, you know, first my dream was for, like, someone who listens to the show to reach out to us, right? And we got that from our boy Nick P over there in the UK. Recommended The Beast of War. If you haven't listened to that episode, please go check that out. That was based on a listener recommendation. By the way, if you want to recommend anything, you know, please do so at any of these. We'd love to work it in somehow. So, yeah, but what I would really love kind of in that spirit, Ryan, is, like, 
I don't know how many people are associated with random.org. It might be one person. It might be like three. But if any of them somehow reached out and was like, dude, Jason, thanks so much for plugging the website. Really appreciate you. <laughs> that would be amazing. Man, <laughs> what a random.org reference that is. I love it. Uh, all right, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and we're going to do this. I'm going to go to my random.org true number generator. We have one through 200. Well, first of all, I got to strike out old Amadeus now. And for those playing at home, of course, it's just RoboCop week one, Amadeus week two. Talk about a one-two punch, man. Damn. Got to watch RoboCop and then Amadeus. Oh, yeah, buddy. Very yeah. different films, but fucking loved both of them. That's we're on sure. a roll. Don't let me down. Ah, it's always a roll of the dice. We are due for a high art, like foreign film or something, uh, think piece or something like that. So let's see what we get. Interesting. Okay. We have got something that I know has been on both of our lists forever. Uh, not expecting to love this to be completely what number? honest. What number? We're looking at number 51. Okay. okay. So for those playing at home, number 51 That's on right. the list. Go ahead and go to 51. Check it out. It's in the F section. F section, right? Now, Ryan, a couple of disappointing things. Uh, on either side of 51, we have got some magical sci-fi because at 50, we had Flash Gordon, which I know you haven't seen and oh, have been wow. dying to. Yes. And and at 52, we have Forbidden Planet, which I don't think either of us have ever seen. I have not. No, I had a friend the, of mine that was obsessed the with The classic black and white sci-fi with the robot. Yeah, so. What's uh, that, but Forbidden no, for, Planet? Yeah. No, Forbidden Planet's a French animated film. Oh shit, dude, absolutely. I actually you know what's funny? I actually have seen that. It's uh it's interesting. It's also short. Yeah. You'll love it. It's an hour long. Just <laughs> go in the back and grab your mushrooms out of the grass and just eat them and see what happens and watch Forbidden yeah. Planet, because that's what that French animation is like. Land. Yeah. <laughs> uh so no, for uh for this one, we are going to do a well, I'll tell you what. Uh, let's see if you got this one. Uh, it should be pretty easy. We got F. It is the first film of a filmmaker who could be argued is currently the most popular filmmaker working today. Not of all time. He might be up there when he's all said and done. But the first film from arguably the most popular director still working with huge budgets. Who might I be talking about? Ooh, if wow. I told, if, I told you, if I told you he was a British director that did American films, might that lead you? If I told you that right now he was poaching every single famous white actor in Hollywood for his current project, would you know? He's still so, dude. You still got Spielberg making West Side Story. How are you going to say this is the most no, popular? Most like at this time, I believe this filmmaker is more popular than Spielberg. That's why I said not historically. If you were to say most popular, okay. but like in twenty twenty two. If you ask most people, I think they would say this argue this director is more popular today, like right now, actively than is making more popular films than Spielberg is making right now. Let's put it that way. And it's from what from what year? <laughs> it's from a while ago, buddy. I don't know. All right, I got nothing. What do you got? The film is following. Chris Nolan is the answer. Oh, awesome. Yes, we are got it. Christopher Nolan's first film following. I know both of us. Yes. Uh, by the way, not the it. Christopher I'm... Nolan that directed my uh, Snow Dogs six through twelve uh, saga. <laughs> not with the I've K. Toiling no. on, and I had to come back from Alaska in a dog sled. Um, no, the actual Christopher Nolan. 
Yes. Yeah. Well, not with his the, brother. His K brother helps him with everything. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm, I, I think this is kind of going to kind of going to be like a like a pie type film, right? Like I'm expecting, like, okay, you know, good first effort. Yeah. Definitely see some Chris things going on there, but like, it's certainly not going to be, you know, a two hundred million dollar space epic, sci fi epic, whatever. I'm in. But I'm looking forward to it, man. Because uh, like I said, this is a film that I know both of us have been meaning to check off of our list for some time. So we are watching Chris Nolan's following. Uh, by the way, Ryan, you have a description for us? I do. Uh, <laughs> a little better late than never, Jason. Uh, thanks for tossing it back to me. This is from 1999, directed by the great Christopher Nolan, described on Google as a young writer living in London, follows people in the hope of using their lives in his novels. But the hobby becomes an obsession, and he soon finds himself going further than intended. Uh, from 1999, this is saying it was made on a budget of 6000 U.S. dollars. Wow. Um, so also 1999, one of the arguably best years of cinema. So arguably. we'll have to see if this uh, makes the list there. I don't think it will, but let's go ahead and check it out. All right. So for everyone listening, uh, we really appreciate you showing up. Hopefully you enjoyed this discussion of Amadeus. If you haven't seen it, I mean, at this point, you know, you're probably not going to because we just eh, went through the whole damn movie for you. But still, I, I don't think this is a movie <laughs> that loses anything by knowing exactly what the story is. You know, it's really it's the experience. It's not doesn't hinge on a twist or anything like that. Please, 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 if you haven't seen it, go watch Amadeus. Love that movie. And then, yeah, we're looking forward to talking about following. We're going to watch it in the next couple weeks here. Hopefully you do too. And we will see you next time right here at Esoterica Cinema.